Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. So anything about Okay, that's see, what
context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Tuesday, July 5th, 2016. So I have been told, I hope all of our victims of racism, non-white listeners, have all of their fingers and toes intact after the 4th of July shenanigans. I know they had a report in the Seattle Times here that they had uh, well over a dozen folks uh, at the emergency room as a result of uh, unfortunate accidents that happened yesterday. So just emphasize sobriety and staying safe. Already have enough problems under the system of white supremacy. Broadcast today, uh, we will get Dr. Kamau Kamban's reflections. Uh, he's been on the program uh, repeatedly, uh, more than five times. I thought it would be extremely uh, informative to get some of his reflections uh, on Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, we will certainly get to that. He had uh, much to say, uh, an extreme appreciation uh, for her uh, dedication, tireless, ceaseless dedication over nearly a half century to fighting against the system of white supremacy. So we will certainly get to that. Uh, but a few other things uh, I want to make sure that we touch on before uh, we hear from Dr. Kamau Kamban. Audio clip you heard at the beginning, not that this is the most uh, important matter, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, Kevin Durant, basketball player, black male, switching teams, going to the Golden State Warriors. Uh, you saw a lot of the same trifling antics that took place before really not just uh, with LeBron James leaving Cleveland back in 2010 but I've seen this quite a few other times when uh, these black athletes when they leave or articulate some sort of autonomy that I am not just your inanimate plaything here to entertain you a black body without a brain and I just go out and run around in your fields on your courts uh, for your white entertainment, your white amusement, uh, that I can make my own decisions about my career, my life, what's going to be best for me, my family, uh, decisions that I think uh, would behoove my own self-interest. Like, who does this nigga think he is? A la Kurt Flood. We talked about him on the program before. Uh, but lots of whites over the past 48 hours have been saying a lot of really nasty things, even uh, corralling some victims of racism to join in and uh, folks who were upset about this and, and saying nasty things about Kevin Durant, calling him a coward and cursing at him and, and whatever else uh, that they can come up with. Typical trashiness of racism, white supremacy. But that audio clip, uh, there was uh, a white person that was actually in Oklahoma City where they had this uh, white person. It looked like it was a small group of people. And they had their signs, and uh, the white guy, he had a Kevin Durant jersey on, and he had Trader uh, on the back of it. He scratched out Durant's name and put Trader there. Uh, and a black female, in my opinion, demonstrating a great amount of black self-respect, she confronted him. Uh, you heard what she said, uh, telling him, you know, Kevin Durant uh, made this place important. If anything, you should be appreciative of what he invested in this city uh, over the last almost decade uh, that you should be appreciative as opposed to just being out here being upset and calling him names and acting like you're going to take this personal and you're going to come out here to degrade his name and disparage him publicly. I uh, thought that was uh, great black self-respect uh, and she just let him know her views and then went about her business, whatever else she was doing uh, with her day. Um, I thought 
just quickly, as I said, because this is not the most important thing in the system of white supremacy, I can think of many other important things connected to Oklahoma City. I think they just had a massive set of tornadoes not even that long ago that I'm sure they are still uh, reconstructing and trying to rebuild. I think some people died and significant property loss that they uh, took quite a bit of time to recover from, not to mention Daniel Holtzclaw. I know this situation with Kevin Durant. I mean, we're talking about a ball game. This situation got a lot more attention than Oklahoma City police officer Daniel Holtzclaw raping more than a dozen black females. I didn't hear nearly as much outrage and protesting whites out in the street. How can we have an Oklahoma City peace officer out terrorizing black females in this manner i didn't hear nearly as much outrage so i mean if we really want to put this in context that's why i said i'm not i don't really care either way who cares uh, about their ball games none of that is going to solve our problems as black people victims of white supremacy but as i said just for additional context uh, i remember i think kevin durant arrived in seattle almost at the same time that we did uh, the oklahoma city team was uh, in Seattle. Uh, he won Rookie of the Year here in Seattle, and I was not upset when he and the entire team departed for Oklahoma City, so I certainly do not care uh, now that he has you know, decided he's going to exit and uh, move off to uh, Oklahoma down in California. Excuse me, Oakland down in California. Um, a few other things that I did uh, think of, again, I'm reminded of Kurt Flood, black male baseball player uh, with St. Louis, pause for Michael Brown, uh, who kind of open the door. I think he's the person that gets credited with this free agency being able to sign and negotiate your own contracts and do what you want because this was not allowed previously. They did not allow black athletes that level of autonomy over their bodies and what they were going to do athletically. Uh, baseball, basketball, the other professional sports that are still racist dominated worldwide not just here uh, in this country. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting because here in Seattle uh, apparently the whites, even though they were not really super, super vested, it didn't seem, at least that was my perception being here at the time, it didn't seem they were super vested in trying to keep the team here in Seattle for a variety of reasons. It was just kind of a, eh, stay, go, whatever the case may be. Didn't, I just never got that impression. Maybe it is. But they have certainly, over the past, uh, I think it's been like eight, nine years since the team has been in Oklahoma City, I can certainly vouch and say that I have seen a lot of different articulations that they do take pleasure in seeing Oklahoma City fail. Uh, I remember during the 2012 finals, uh, there were lots of articles hoping that they lost, hoping that they, that LeBron James and Miami could get it together and beat them, which they did. So they rejoiced when they lost. Uh, they rejoiced when Oklahoma City lost to Golden State in the conference finals this year in the playoffs. Lots of uh, rejoicing, and they had different articles. I don't know if I shared them, but again, White's just, yes, we're so happy. We're so delighted that they failed. We hope they lose and lose forever. And the same thing happened when Kevin Durant lost. They had an article in the Seattle Times uh, posted yesterday uh, by Matt Calkins. Uh, this is a white male. His article's titled, uh, titled, Oklahoma City's Pain in Losing Kevin Durant is Seattle's Joy. And the very first line in the report, it reads, birds are chirping, hmm. locals are whistling, schadenfreude is in the air. And just that word, schadenfreude, we have talked about that concept on this program before. I posted this article on my Facebook page and in the cows group as well. I think that concept is a significant aspect 
of white culture way beyond just this event because we've talked about it so frequently. I think the first time that I mentioned this word, and I think Thomas in New York asked me to spell it specifically, if I remember, it was when we were doing the book study session on Katrina after the flood, Gary Rivlin. And I was talking about it in the context of the former mayor, now federal uh, inmate, Ray Nagin. And I said that it to me, it seemed that there was a great deal of schadenfreude in enjoying Ray Nagin being incarcerated in greater confinement. Yes, you get to see another black person fail and be in misery. Woohoo! I see this all the time. And really, I mean, schadenfreude, this term, this concept is a synonym for sadism. It's the same thing. Uh, sadism, you take pleasure, often something, some sort of sexual gratification in seeing others in misery and suffering. It is a super component of racism, white supremacy, and I just I think frequently, all the time, daily even, whites, they enjoy, they take fantastic gratification in black suffering and misery. I see this all the time. We talk about this in workplace racism. Uh, and just to see this on display again, even though this is seeing a lot of whites lamenting that Kevin Durant has left Oklahoma City. And so they're so happy and glad that Oklahoma's, the folks that are supporting the Oklahoma City Thunder team are going to be suffering and they probably won't win anything for a while. And this might cause some of their other better players to leave as well. But uh, just that concept once again, and he has, it's the very first sentence of the article. We are so delighted to see them suffering and sad for July 4th. Whoopee! <laughs> we don't even have a team. This team has been gone for 10 years and we're still uh, celebrating all of this. And I, I see this concept, the schadenfreude, sadism, whichever way you want to think about it. Uh, I see it articulated. Uh, you had a lot of whites who were are just hugely satisfied to see Minister Malcolm X when he was assassinated in 65 and saying, oh, that's what you get. You preach death. That's what you get. Ha ha ha. Uh, and writing this in major publications. Same thing with wanting to see President Obama fail when they were coming out and saying this openly, blatantly, repeatedly in 2008 when he was elected. Wanting to see Cam Newton lose, if you want to keep it in the arena of sports, uh, back with the Super Bowl this year and saying that he's so cocky and he's so arrogant and we're so glad to see him get knocked down a peg. I heard a white woman say that uh, specifically, explicitly at a coffee shop here in Seattle. Uh, Serena Williams wanting to see her lose, wanting to see her fail. Muhammad Ali, he said that himself, that he felt like a lot of people wanted to see him lose. Uh, LeBron James, certainly, that's an all-the-time thing in wanting to see him fail. Uh, but just that stuck out, as I said, I don't think this is the most important or significant thing in the system of racism, white supremacy. Certainly is related any time that, that whites are going to comment about a black person expressing some form of autonomy uh, and what they're going to do with their lives, their skills, their talents. Moving forward, uh, we will get to Dr. Kambon's uh, segment in a moment. Uh, there is one other clip that I will get to before we get to that, and this is I am relating two topics, and it is even NBA-related, directly NBA-related, but I am also connecting this to what happened uh, with Jesse Williams. That's something that we didn't talk about a whole lot. I purposely was not really interested in talking about a whole lot because uh, I heard the speech. Uh, it took a while for me to even listen to it. I didn't even listen to it until uh, this week, but I heard the speech, uh, and I didn't feel compelled to rush out and listen to it because I had heard Jesse Williams before. This is not like this is the first time that he said something about racism. Jesse Williams, he's an actor on Grey's Anatomy. He does have a white parent, which I think is relevant, significant. Uh, they showed his white mother at the BET Awards where he gave his uh, speech last month. 
but uh, he gave the speech uh, talking about racism and police brutality, and he did some name drops for Sandra Bland and uh, Michael Brown and Rakia Boyd and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and some of the other victims of uh, white terrorism uh, over the past few years or so. But he's been talking about a lot of these incidents uh, for years uh, at this point. I know I heard him way back in 2014 uh, where he was talking about everything that was going down in Ferguson. I think he might have even gone uh, to Ferguson to participate in some of the protests and things uh, that were happening when, you know, things were hot. Uh, when things really flared up back, I think, in like August and September, right within the first few days and weeks after Michael Brown uh, was shot and killed uh, by Darren Wilson. Uh, But I had heard him uh, speak before. Uh, I wasn't upset about it. I wasn't overjoyed. It was just, oh, okay, right on, something constructive. He said what he said, if you want to stick to code, but like, okay, right on. Uh, I'd heard other people that were entertainers, uh, musicians, actors, actresses. I'd heard other people uh, talking about that as well, so it was not startling uh, to hear him, amongst others, saying something about racism in these uh, police shootings specifically, but I was taken aback by how much attention was focused uh, on Jesse Williams' award speech uh, more recently, both positive attention in terms of people just being overjoyed and, oh, this is wonderful, and have an entertainer come out and say all this on a major primetime television program, and uh, the allegations and people saying that they were upset Uh, that he was getting all this attention. They felt that he wouldn't be getting this attention if he didn't have a white parent and uh, if he had a bit more melanin, uh, if he looked like his former Grey's Anatomy co-star, Isaiah Washington, if I want to name someone specifically who I'd heard talking about racism. Isaiah Washington, black male, he was in Love Jones, he was in Bullworth. He also was formerly on Grey's Anatomy until he uh, said something about quote-unquote homosexuals and then he got labeled a black homophobe. They fired him from the show and uh, his career was kind of in purgatory for years. He still kind of has that uh, stigma of being, oh man, remember what you said a decade ago and oh man aren't you sorry aren't you pitiful he's talked about this he did an uh, interview on NPR where he talked about this within the last two or three years and saying that that just has continued to kind of follow him around and make it difficult for him and he kind of has to constantly explain himself when he's out and about or what have you but Mr. Isaiah Washington, he was on CNN just last year, and he was talking about white supremacy. He referenced Neely Fuller Jr.'s book. He tweeted Neely Fuller Jr.'s book. He tweeted about Dr. Francis Cresswell. I mean, he was extremely explicit uh, in his commentary last year, and I'm not sure if that got as much uh, attention as Jesse Williams. Maybe Jesse Williams is a bigger uh, star has more clout in Hollywood. Uh, the, as I said, uh, Isaiah Washington is still dealing with the fallout and, and all of the attacking against him as a result of his uh, comments that were perceived to be uh, homophobic. I think he used the word faggot. I could be in error about that, but I think that's what happened. And again, that was like a decade ago. At any rate, I am connecting uh, everything that went down with Jesse Williams to Uh, This segment that was on Michael Rappaport's podcast where he was talking about Stephen Curry, who is an NBA player. He also is uh, on the pale side, doesn't have as much melanin as Isaiah Washington, LeBron James, Dick Gregory, Samuel L. Jackson on the lighter side. Uh, And they're talking about the same thing and saying that Stephen Curry is getting a lot of criticism from black people uh, because he is light-skinned and they don't think that this is just that this is incorrect that this is what they call colorism Uh, if you want to think of spike lee's film school days where black people that are darker and black people that are lighter uh, have some sort of conflict or don't get along uh, as a result of 
the difference in pigmentation. Uh, one of the things that I always think is massively incorrect that people are going to talk about this, I definitely want to make sure. I'm not saying that this squabbling is not a problem. We've talked about this on the program before. We've talked about this with Pam. Uh, plug her website, racismws.com. Uh, she's talked about it in her numerous publications. I think uh, the Beauty Con game most explicitly uh, talks about this and how this uh, colorism and getting black people to squabber, squabble and bicker uh, with each other about who's lighter or who's darker and what that means, uh, that that all is a part of the racist white supremacist design. And just in my view, anytime that that conversation takes place and it's not rooted in racism, white supremacy, it is a major error. And often I am left to think that this is just another means to talk about how lame and defective black people are without making sure we explain how things got this way, that we did not just, we were not just born, the creator did not put us on this planet to squabble and bicker with each other about, oh, well, you are a few shades lighter, so I don't, I don't like you, or I have a problem with you, or you are a few shades darker. All of that comes as a result of what has happened to us for centuries of being terrorized by whites who are the most color conscious people in the universe, the most color conscious race in the universe and all for nefarious purposes uh, again we talked about this before not just with Pam uh, we also talked about this with Dr. Ronald E. Hall uh, his book An Historical Analysis of Skin Color Discrimination this was back in 2011 we talked about this concept on the program before and I think every time that we've done so it's been rooted within racism white supremacy and whites being most to blame for all of this, but I'm connecting the two because I saw articles. I've seen many articles, both with Stephen Curry and the Golden State Warriors saying that, oh, man, black people, it's, you know, it's messed up. I see so many black people hating on the Golden State Warriors and talking bad about them or talking bad about Stephen Curry and celebrate maybe even schadenfreude and <laughs> rejoicing that they lost in the finals. And the same thing with Jesse Williams. I've seen a lot of black people where they're talking bad and saying that they hate him or they are tired of him getting all this attention because of his speech. And that's messed up and colorism, colorism uh, with amongst black people is a big problem. I've seen a lot of that and I'm suspicious, very suspicious of that line of thinking. Again, not that I'm saying colorism is a problem, but just the way that this has been presented. Uh, I see black people squabble, scrutinize, fuss, name call other black people all the time. It's not like Jesse Williams and Stephen Curry are the only individuals on the planet, only black people on the planet who are the source of ire for black people. I mean, that is absurd to the highest degree. I'm going to play this uh, segment from Michael Rappaport's podcast where he's talking about this very concept because for me, this makes the point better than anything I could say. I think Mr. Fuller always says, whites can show you better than I can tell you. And this really makes the point. And it does so, so well because Michael Rappaport doesn't really say a whole lot. All he does is host this podcast and then he turns the floor over uh, to a black journalist, uh, Jamila Hill, uh, and she's done a lot of work talking about racism. Some of it is, is great where she makes just outstanding points huge significance of black journalism and she's been doing uh, her work for a long time many many years uh, she's a reporter at ESPN but that said he turns things over to her to let her say all of this and then he just cosigns when it's done I've pointed this technique out before where racists they are awesome with this technique I think this is in 
the book 48 Laws of Power, where this is one of the ways that you can manipulate and control things, where you can get someone to uh, advance your objective. If it's just the use of words, you can get someone specifically to go out and say, articulate your point of view, your perspective, the way that you want people to think about a certain subject matter, but you are not the one that says it. That can be more effective sometimes because uh, people might be more suspicious if you come out and are saying this or are encouraging people to think in a certain way. You can be more persuasive, more manipulative if you get someone else to be the messenger. I think Amy Goodman does this in a devastating manner all the time. Anytime that she wants to talk bad about President Obama, she just gets uh, victims of racism, some non-white people, generally some black people to come in and bash on President Obama and she just sits back mm-hmm, 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 and doesn't say a word. Michael Rappaport in my opinion does the exact same thing in this segment. The only thing I'll say before I hit the play button uh, I think in context for Michael Rappaport I think it is important. I can do it chronologically. Most recently he had a very public spat with aforementioned Spike Lee Uh, They were talking about gentrification. Spike Lee had made public comments talking about gentrification as just another weapon of white supremacy, racial dislocation of black people. They were talking in New York specifically. For whatever reason, Michael Rappaport felt compelled to inject himself in this conversation. And how dare Spike Lee come out and have something bad to say about gentrification and who does he think he is? Specifically, he called him a shit stain in quotes. Uh, I'm not cleaning that up or censoring because that's exactly what he said uh, in the commentary. This was very public. I think this was 2014. Before that, Michael Rappaport was in the Spike Lee film Bamboozled, which I think is phenomenal work. Uh, He was in that film. He played the character Dunwitty, who you're going to hear at the beginning of this segment, uh, who calls black people niggers, produces uh, an extremely white supremacist minstrel show to just degrade black people and justifies all this by saying that he's married to a black female. You'll hear some of the commentary before we even get into his podcast. Uh, And then even before that, I'm so glad one of our listeners reminded me he was also in Higher Learning, uh, the John Singleton film. Uh, He played a white supremacist. (laughs) Like, no... Uh, I'm not, you know, making that up. He played a white supremacist and ultimately his character killed Tyra Banks uh, in the film. If folks remember that, that came out uh, in the 90s. Uh, I could also mention Zebrahead as well. That was uh, Oliver Stone's flick from more than 20 years ago, which is also all about racism, white supremacy, when Michael Rappaport is uh, in some sort of tacky sexual arrangement with a black female. But that is for another day. I just, all of that is, is context that should be kept in mind when we listen to Michael Rappaport as though he's so concerned uh, about how Steph Curry is treated. Uh, the last tidbit, just for context, he does this podcast on May 31st of 2016. That's the date that this podcast originally aired. Two days later, the title of the podcast that he does is LeBron James Bash extravaganza July, excuse me June 2nd June 2nd two days later the very next podcast that he does is LeBron James bash extravaganza this guy Michael Rappaport hates LeBron James for whatever reason has LeBron James much more melanated than Steph Curry and he's done not just one but many many segments where he talks about how much he dislikes LeBron James he even got invited on uh, talk shows after 
uh, LeBron James and Cleveland won the NBA championship to talk about how he still despises and hates LeBron James. So he can stop all of his hating of LeBron James for long enough to say, oh, man, it's terrible how Steph Curry is being treated by the Knickers and then get back to hating on LeBron James. Just add that in for context. So we'll get to his podcast. This is uh, Michael Rappaport, May 31st, 2016. His guest is the victim of white supremacy, Jamila Hill, black female. Uh, And they're talking about colorism as it relates to Steph Curry. Context of white supremacy. We have Oklahoma City Thunder listener, or excuse me, listeners in Oklahoma who are present. Uh, salute if you have any commentary you'd like to share about what you've observed from ground zero about white's conduct about Kevin Durant leaving. Feel free, we'll have time for listeners to share later on as well. But this is Michael Rappaport, context of white supremacy. You know, I grew up around black people my whole life. I mean, if the truth be told, I probably know niggas better than you. And don't go getting offended by my use of the quote-unquote N-word. I have a black wife and two biracial kids, so I feel I have a right. I don't give a goddamn what that prick Spike Lee says. Tarantino was right. Nigger is just a word. If old dirty bastard could use it every other word, why can't I? Well, I would prefer if you did not use that word in my presence. Oh, really? Nigger, 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 nigger. All right, so I'm calling my friend Jamel Hill who I love, 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 love. She um, is the host, the co-host of His and Hers on ESPN with Michael Smith. And uh, I'm just a huge fan of hers. I love her. I love her take on sports. I think she's got a great personality. She's fun. And I, you know, I just think she's dope. So I'm calling Jamel Hill. This is an interview from the Vroom Tomb, uh, uh, a driving interview with an actual ESPN sports reporter, uh, another groundbreaking move here uh, at the Iron Rapport Stereo Podcast, Diary of Game 7 episode. We're going live and direct now with uh, the fantastic Jamel Hill. Hello. Jamel, it's Michael Rappaport. How are you? I'm good. What's going on, man? Hey. What's going on is it's game seven, and I can't say that I've, I can't remember being this excited about a Western Conference finals game. I, it almost feels like a Super Bowl sort of anticipation for this game. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, the ratings have uh, come back from game six, and it's already, that game was the most watched NBA game of the, of the season, so I can't imagine what this one will be. But, I mean, you're right. It, it, it's funny because. Each story is each game is its own story, but this one it just feels so momentous. So much is on the line. You got a seventy-three kid historic team. You have all this conversation about whether or not if, if Oklahoma City loses this game, what kind of impact this might have on Kevin Durant. I mean, it's just it feels like the, the fate of humanity is on this today. Now, let me ask you a question because, you, you, you know, I'm asking this because I'm so fascinated by what you guys do at ESPN and you're there on a day to day basis. And, you know, did you could you have imagined this this curry backlash? I mean, maybe it's because I'm blind and I'm such a fan of his. Could you have imagined like so like so fast, like people turning on curry so quick? And, 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 and how does that happen, and, and why do you think that happened? Because, I mean, as far as a sports guy and, and as sort of as a, a, like a hero, he's everything you'd want. But then you, he has a couple of bad games. He's on the ropes. And, I mean, I, it was just like 
boom, like it was people laughing at him, giggling at him, uh, talking greasy. W- w- what is that all about? And did you ever imagine that would happen so fast to somebody like that who's so well liked? I-, I knew it would happen eventually because eventually it happens to everybody because success does breed contempt for a lot of people. But here's the thing. There's so many layers to the Steph Curry hatred. One, you got all these old heads like Oscar Robertson and even my man, Charles Barkley, you know, who I love dearly, that just simply that don't like the style of basketball that Golden State is playing. Right. And this, yeah, you know what I mean? And this idea that a shooter, quote unquote, is dominating the game and is considered to be the best basketball player uh, in the NBA right now. They can't stand that idea. Because as it is, they have issues with today's basketball in general, but they really have issues with how the Warriors play as a dominant three-point shooting team, as a team that is kind of representative of the analytical evolution of this game. They cannot stand that. Right. Then you then you have another layer of it in that there are people who feel like Steph is some kind of package that we just have to accept. He's got the NBA bloodlines and his dad playing. He's got the fine mom that everybody loves. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got the two kids. It's like they just don't want to believe this dude is quote-unquote perfect because of what the outer layer exterior is. And so there's that part of it. And then even deeper, if I can just go way, way deep, deep, deep on a racial level. Let's go. He's he likes him, man. Right. And, like, I, I, I swear that it, it just is the the hatred and the stuff that I hear about him and about them, as in him and Clay, it is unfortunately exposed this deeper level of insecurity within black people that they have when mm-hmm. it comes to skin tone that is kind of, it, it's very bizarre to see it unfold. Like, there's this perception that light skin cats are soft. All right. right. And so... He's got to live with that perception, and because of the way that he's dominating the game, people play him like you saw. And, you know, a lot of people kind of reject this idea. And then there's this this, also this other part of it is like Steph was not, Steph was a story that people didn't see coming. And because people weren't, they, everybody didn't brilliantly, you know, prophesize like with LeBron that LeBron was going to be this big superstar. Everybody knew that. Everybody could see that coming. But nobody saw it coming with Steph. And so because of that, they had to find reasons to reject it because they didn't understand it from the beginning. You know, dude went to Davidson, you know, while considered to be a good player, nobody ever saw him as being an MVP. Right. And so when you miss out on that stuff, people have to find ways to reject a narrative that they didn't understand from the beginning. Because when it comes to basketball, everybody likes to feel like they're smart, like they know the game. And because they didn't see this, they're like, oh, well, we got to reject it because we didn't see it coming. And, of course, we're all smart and knowledgeable, and we should have known better. I, that, that, that's what you just said is you just covered the whole thing. So I, I pre- Oh, wait, wait. Let me, add, wait. let me add one more layer of the mic. Give me and some more layers. On top of that, one more layer that he got the nerve to be the unanimous MVP. And so, of course, we like we as in the media because anybody we like, automatically people can't think. So they're like, hold up. You got 131 people in the media to agree that this guy was the truth. Of course we can't stand him, especially when I wish to God, I'm telling you that Michael Jordan had won a unanimous MVP or any of the other greats had because he wouldn't face this kind of hate. Right. And you, you got to understand, too, it's not just like people on Twitter and social media that hate. 
the open disrespect that he's shown by other players, I've never seen before. I've never like seen it LeBron. either. It's crazy yeah, to me. I mean, it, it is completely crazy for LeBron to all of a sudden unprovoked to go into this conversation about what value is in the NBA. It's like, he would have done that if Russell Westbrook won it. Right. Like, it's just like, he just did it like completely unprovoked. And then, you know, you have Dane Lillard dropping the tweet, no excuses. It's like, yo, like, I just, they didn't do that with LeBron. They didn't even do that with Dirk Nowitzki, all right? People going in on him. And his team got sent home in the first round of the year. He won an MVP. Right. And yet, it just is completely acceptable to do it with Steph. That, yeah, that, 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 that's good stuff, Jamel, because I, I agree. You know, I, I'm a fan of his. And, and I've, been, I've, I've, you know, I was fortunate to follow him at Davidson, um, probably just because of his last name, and I knew his pops, and I just became aware of him, uh, and, and you know, and I, you know, I just I've come across him. He's just chill. His, I just, I just don't understand it. I just, I, you know, I, well, I agree with everything that you just said. Context of white supremacy, uh, uh, and I have no problem, no issue with uh, Jamila Hill, her analysis there, uh, there or anyplace else. Uh, like I said, she's done a lot of great uh, journalistic work talking explicitly uh, about racism, white supremacy uh, in sports. And even if I didn't uh, agree with her assessment, she's a victim of white supremacy. She has VGQ. She said what she said. I will take issue with Michael Rappaport. Uh, and as I said, just the whole way that it's packaged, and it's not just the Jesse Williams thing. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize or say that, quote unquote, colorism is not a problem. I will submit, though, that regardless of whether black people are arguing, bickering, squabbling with each other about who's darker, who's lighter, the system of white supremacy encourages black people and non-white people on the whole to argue and squabble, be in conflict with each other about anything. As I stated before, because you're too dark, because you're too light, because you've read too much, because you've not read enough, any reason will do. That is what the entire system of white supremacy is predicated on. Keep non-white people in conflict with each other for any reason. Keep them totally unfocused on whites. The problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Now, the packaging, and I've seen the same the same packaging in terms of delivering this critique that, oh, man, look at how bad black people are behaving towards Jesse Williams and Steph Curry and the Warriors on, on the whole. Uh, when it's packaged by someone like Michael Rappaport, I am tremendously suspicious, uh, particularly just his whole vernacular, like talking as though I'm so cool and I'm so down with black people. I can use what is stereotypically thought of as black slang. And I know Steph Curry's pops and people are talking greasy about Steph Curry. And he's so just everything about that just seems, in my view, just seems so fake and pretentious. And he could say, well, you know, I grew up in New York. I'm down. I'm hip. This is what I do. I grew up listening to Trap Club. Whatever. <laughs> you just, to me, you come across just like a racist white supremacist who would fool a lot of black people into thinking this is a cool white guy. He knows what's up. He's down with black people. He sounds like us. He likes black people. He watches basketball. He did a whole documentary on Tribe Called Quest. Rest in peace, Fife Dog. Uh, but I have seen that before. You're not going to fool me. I know racists 
They can listen to any kind of black music and have done so for centuries. They can listen to black music. We talked about that in The Half Has Never Been Told. The raping white enslaver can have no problem coming out and listening to Fiddler for an hour or five hours and then coming in to rape your mother, your daughter, your wife, you, or sell you all tomorrow morning after he's been out listening to you all play the banjo for five hours. They have no problem with that at all. And that's what I'm saying. I have a problem with the packaging. Uh, It's not just with this report because a lot of these other articles uh, that have been suggesting or saying, oh, man, it's messed up how black people are treating Jesse Williams, how they're treating the warriors, even if it has not been delivered specifically by a white person. And Michael Rappaport didn't uh, didn't explicitly say that. But you set things up so that we get this perspective. And again, you do this podcast and you come back in 48 hours and the program is less talk bad about LeBron James. No, you lose all credibility, uh, all credibility. If that's what it's going to be that I'm sad that maybe some black people talked bad about this particular non-white person who happens to be a little bit lighter complexion. And then as soon as we're done with that, I'm going to get back to talking bad about these other black people that I don't like. And that is totally acceptable for me to do that. Not just one time, but all the time to talk bad about this other black person that I don't like, or a myriad of black people that I don't like, including Spike Lee, even though they're supposedly to uh, have patched things up with the beef that they had a few weeks ago. As I said, I see the same thing with Jesse Williams. I don't have a problem with Jesse Williams. Uh, I can't say that I'm, you know, overjoyed about his sentiments. I kind of had the same responses when I saw Isaiah Washington last year when he posted about Neely Fuller Jr. and was talking about white supremacy on CNN with Don Lemon. Great. Wonderful. More attention on white supremacy. Hopefully more people will read Mr. Fuller's work, continuing with what's, you know, the business at hand trying to solve this problem. I was not overjoyed. I still am a little uh, miffed at why people would be uh, so just overwhelmed. And this is incredible. Not angry. Just that is a tad surprising. Uh, And I could see the logic in people trying to explain why that would be the case, that this would receive so much attention uh, either way. But moving forward. Uh, before, and I certainly will make time if folks uh, have commentary on that aspect, the Kevin Durant aspect, or what we hear from Dr. Camba and his reflections on Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Just uh, before I get to that, I think two quick things. Number one, uh, the metaphor um, wake-up call. Uh, I don't I don't particularly care for that metaphor. I don't think it's uh, accurate. My suggestion would be not to use it. Reason, explanation. If you think about waking up, those metaphors I always encourage. If you think about waking up, for most people, that is not a process. I don't know what time you woke up this morning, given what you may have done yesterday, July 4th. But whenever you woke up this morning, I'm sure it did not take you five hours to get out of bed. I'm sure most mornings, whatever the case may be, weekday, weekend, if you have to go to work or not, if you have more free time on the plantation that day, I'm sure for most people, when you wake up, it's not a long, drawn-out process. It's pretty close to being instantaneous. Oh, I'm awake. It might take you a few seconds, maybe even a few minutes, certainly depending on your age, to actually physically get out of the bed. But the process of waking up is not something that is long and drawn out. It's pretty close to being an instantaneous thing in terms of waking up. When people use that metaphor, wake-up call, about racism, get your wake-up call and all of that, uh, I think it's, it's massively inaccurate. And in my view, it promotes an incorrect way of thinking about racism. Uh, you do not wake up to racism. 
you have to learn, in my view, you have to take time to learn, even if I would borrow from higher learning, unlearn, rethink, reflect, to get a better understanding of white supremacy. That takes time. That can be something, a process that takes years of study, reflection, thinking, questions, analysis, observation. That takes a lot of time. It is not analogous to waking up out of bed at all. It's not even close, in my opinion. And it, in my view, promotes this way of thinking as though it is an instantaneous process of coming to get a better comprehension of white supremacy racism. That's not true at all. I'm still learning. We've been doing this program for seven years. I'm still learning. We're still working to get a better way of using words to articulate racism, white supremacy, a better way of conveying these concepts, counter-racist logic, to other victims of racism, including myself, figuring out the best way to think about this, speak about this, act against white supremacy, and manage our emotions. That is a constant process. It's not a one-time, oh, I woke up to racism on and moving. That's, I mean, it just, in my view, it's totally inaccurate. And I, I would encourage people to rethink, if not to discontinue the use of that metaphor in talking about a person getting a quote unquote wake up call as it relates to racism, white supremacy. Number one, number two. Uh, also, I hear people saying that separation, I hear this regularly, people post about this, people sometimes have said it on the program, suggesting that the solution to white supremacy is separation, quote unquote, black people somehow sequestering ourselves away from whites or maybe even non-white people in total, having some sort of uh, geographic location that is exclusive to non-white people. That, in my view, is another incorrect way of thinking about racism, white supremacy. It's not going to solve this problem. In my view, it's promoted as a false solution, uh, and it's obvious. Uh, to me, it just it would come down to what is your understanding of racism, white supremacy? What is the reality of white power? Non-white people do not have the ability to enforce separation from whites. That is obvious. If that were the case, we would not have a problem of what is called gentrification racial dislocation it would just be this is our neighborhood get out we don't allow crackers whites albinos whatever you want to call them we don't allow you all around here this is our spot roll we better not see you back here again or you know you will get it <laughs> you will know not to come back around here that i have not seen enforced anywhere in the world not just in this part of the globe uh you have this same problem even though they don't call it gentrification on the continent, uh, and I've been seeing those reports for years, whites buying up property or doing whatever they want uh, on the continent and elsewhere. Same thing uh, in areas that they call Asian parts of the world where whites putting army bases down. I've even seen this where they're putting army bases down in Japan and the non-white people there have said specifically, we don't want these bases here. We don't want you to have this location. And the whites have said, uh-huh, and you don't have the power to do anything about it. So Right. Duly noted and continuing with construction of our military fortress. That is racism, white supremacy. I'm not even even if we were talking on a micro level, I have not seen where black people have the ability to exclude whites from their family. I have seen and I've heard it from you all calling in non-white people, black people, non-whites on the whole have a problem even keeping black people 
from marrying, sexually sewering our offspring or cousins or siblings. I have seen and heard that reported for years. If we had the muscle to keep ourselves separate from whites, that wouldn't be a problem. They wouldn't even have access to our offspring or siblings to be sexually involved with them at all. It's just not accurate in my view. I think it's, it's one of those things, if we want to say it, and it could just come down to uh, not using the correct terms to articulate a possible means of countering racism. If it's minimizing contact with whites as much as possible under these conditions, great, all for that, absolutely, particularly sexually, but as in many areas as possible, minimizing contact involvement with whites, absolutely. But if you mean separation, and maybe even that would have to be defined in terms of how separate is separate. How far away does a white person have to be? 30 miles, 50 miles, 5 inches, exactly what are you talking about? But again, I just have not seen where whites, excuse me, non-white people anywhere in the world have the power to deny white people access to where we happen to be at. Again, and the same thing could be applied to police brutality, what they call police brutality, police terrorism. We wouldn't have these issues with Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Rakia Boyd. Eric Garner, ad infinitum, if we could just deny whites access. We don't allow white cops around here. Roll. Get out of here. Go patrol someplace else. This is our area. We better not see you back around here again. I have not seen where we have that power. If I'm in error for sure, make sure that you have a note and dial in immediately uh, to set Gus straight if I am, you know, talking greasy, not making sense uh, here on the cows. With that, uh, we will get to the reflections uh, from Dr. Kamal Kambon. Uh, it was fantastic to be able to hear uh, some of his views. I think he might be agreeable to releasing, because this is not the entirety of our conversation, he might be agreeable to releasing the entire conversation. Uh, I know he had talked about that. He had messaged me uh, about that. Uh, if he does, I will give folks uh, the details for how you can access that. Uh, but this is just uh, a portion because he had a lot more to say. But this is a portion of his uh, reflections on Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, her teachings uh, and her appreciation for what she did uh, with her life energy uh, in the more than 50 years of counter-racist work that she dedicated with her time on the planet. Uh, you can visit his website, KamalKamban.org. Address again, KamalKamban.org. It's linked in the description to the program. Uh, if you are listening at Black Talk Radio Network, uh, I'll give the address out again uh, once the audio segment concludes. Uh, if you want to visit his site, uh, invest, support his counter-racist efforts, you'll see uh, the link where you can support uh, his efforts on his website, KamalKamban.org. Uh, you'll see it once you go there, and you'll see some of the other great postings that he's done. Uh, even as a photograph that he took with Dr. Francis Cresswells, and you'll hear him uh, talking about some of the times that he was able to meet her uh, personally uh, throughout his life and, and himself studying, getting a better understanding of racism, white supremacy. But without further ado, uh, I would encourage if you uh, have some sort of regard for the teachings of Dr. Kamban, uh, you can tweet. Post on Facebook, share links to the program so other non-white people can hear what Dr. Kambon has to say. Certainly, if you have some regard for Dr. Frances Cress Welsing and what she did while she was here, trying to heal 
black people and help us gain a better understanding of white supremacy, certainly uh, take time to share with other victims of racism uh, so that they, too, uh, can learn about the monumental loss that we suffered uh, this year in a year that has seen a host uh, of just colossal losses uh, for black people worldwide. Uh, This is Dr. Kamal Kamban reflecting on Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. Context of white supremacy. Your your reflections on Dr. Welsing? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can say that personally that she uh, she means so much to me, and I use the present tense because in African tradition, the spirit never dies, and her spirit, you know, will always live. And this is one of the things I like about uh, African tradition. Some things I don't like, but this is one of the aspects that I do, I think is very relevant, that uh, this idea of the spirit living on, and uh, there's there's a proverb, uh, African proverb, I'll, I'll paraphrase, that as long as you call the person's name, and I carry it one step uh, further, saying that as long as you even think about the person, the person continues to live on. So when they do libation, that means you call on their ancestors, you, rec- you call their name, Marcus Garvey, Paul Robeson, uh, I love William Patterson, you know, among others, Chairman Fred Hampton, Bunchy Carter. The list is endless, and I did a presentation on, not a presentation, but the part of the eulogy for Baba Herman Ferguson, who I just, I mean, I love him. He was a colleague, closest, close associate of Malcolm X. He was here in North Carolina, and I got a chance to spend a lot of time with him. And when you call their names, uh, well, during the eulogy, what I said was I created and I elevated people like them, now including Dr. Wells, into what I call the black magnificent, the grand sister hall of grand of black magnificence. That means that she's now not just an ancestor, but someone explicitly fighting for our liberation. I call a grand sister. Like we have grandparents, grandchildren. Why not have grand sisters? That we really elevate them uh, and give them the stature that they have earned, like Ida B. Wells. So Dr. Wellsing is there in that grand sister hall of black magnificence. She's just such a class person. How she carries herself with such dignity. And what the, one of the most beautiful aspects of Dr. Welding was that her behavior matched her words. See, I always talk about let's minimize and eliminate as much as possible our contrary diction 
while we're in this paradigm called the USA, the United States Corporation of America. And so she personified this idea of matching her words with her actions. And she said, carry yourself with dignity. That's how she carries herself. She said, I heard one of her lectures. I actually pulled out about three or four weeks ago. Uh, it's an old lecture, she said, when she was talking about her, her parent, her, I think it might have been her mother, said, mother said, say what you think. That's what she did. She said what she thought. And she thought out what she was going to say. So she was more than a psychiatrist to me. She was a psychiatrist, she was a medical doctor, but she was a scientist. And I have said this before, that we are fighting against people who are scientific, who are mathematical, who are methodical and calculating. So she understood that fully, and that's how she was. She was scientific, she was mathematical, she was methodical, she was calculating, and she was articulate in how she brought forward the understanding of this dynamic that she called white supremacy. And she extended it with the understanding that she got from the work of Neely Fuller. And he was a close friend and colleague that this is a global dynamic that she said we were in. And she taught us that there, there's a tiny minority that ruling the planet. And we, you, what she has said is irrefutable, that they are trying to avoid white genetic annihilation. Now, I have kind of inserted a little difference in what she has said. I've added to it. And this is why thinking is so important because these great ancestors bring us these ideas and these concepts. And as a human being, we're supposed to evolve them and extend them so that we can come up with a solution to the problem. You know, not just come and talk about it and talk about it. And she offered us her, you know, her solutions, you know, clean up where you are, don't disrespect yourself, etc. And so I have said that um, in addition to the characteristics that she said we should adopt, that we should also understand this global dynamic called the global chessboard. That on this chessboard, white moves, plays offense, defense, and black plays defense, offense. Now, I've kind of changed that. I have a little, and she's helped me kind of crystallize this idea. And I'm saying that for the most part, that the white 
side of the board is really playing defense. And we are on offense. Dr. Khalid Abdul Muhammad, I could say that he's a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. But in the current sense, you know, even though he's a grandsister, I say, you know, he's a friend of mine. He said, he makes a statement. He said, we shall not overcome, we shall overrun. And I have said that if the white people just left us alone for the last 50 years, we would be running America. We would be running this corporation. So everything they do is a scheme. And frankly, I call them the scheming demons. The Constitution is a scheme. Now, Dr. Welsing helped me come to this understanding. When she said, yeah, white moves first, offense, defense. And I have an article, and I'm thinking about trying to find it because a brother brought me an article years ago and it said that chess started in ancient Kemet. I remember reading it, but I don't remember it. And I'm thinking that if it started in ancient Kemet, I'm thinking that black moved first and white played defense. So you look at the Constitution, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, where they put that little piece in there about uh, slavery is abolished, Except if you get arrested, you're in prison, then you could be re-enslaved. So that's defense. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. That's defense. Jim Crow. That the ones that helped me understand. They're playing defense when they created unions to keep black people out. Like the first jockeys, for example. If you look at this video the journey of the African-American athlete where the first bicyclist, I don't remember the brother's name, but they, this brother was so good that the white people, that's when they had that big wheel in the front and a little wheel in the back. The white people would stand on the side and try to throw broomsticks into the wheel to make him, you know, crash and fall down. So he wouldn't win all the races. The first jockeys, since they were the ones who had been enslaved Africans, remember, we were never slaves. We were enslaved. That means somebody had more power than we had through weapons and savagery. The first jockeys won all the first derbies, so they were kicked out. They were prohibited from from participating in the derbies. That's defense. They kept blacks out of, as I mentioned, the unions later on. That's defense. So we've always been on offense. We just didn't know we were on offense. So I have a saying, thanks to Dr. Welsing, that says the best offense is a super great defense. And as I extend this idea, we know that you have to shift from offense to defense. I'm thinking team theory now. And she has the whole idea about the, the big balls and the little balls and the brown balls and the white balls. So all of this is coming, you know, because she laid down the initial foundation for understanding 
these concepts about teams. And I'm saying, yeah, when you think about it, these white people are on defense, and we have them on their heels. And just about everything they do is defense. But we don't know that we're on offense. I have a chart, and it's the great black inventions. It says it's a beautiful chart in color. And it says uh, black inventions live on. And when you look at it, it's all the black inventions in this country developed by black people. And when you take all the inventions together, they can actually run a city. And, of course, the white people came. And next, uh, and on the right-hand side of this, it shows you the, the name of the person that invented the, the, the item the date and the patent, and then white people came and, you know, stole it. They bum-rushed all of this. And so this is offense. Now, I have a, a, a brother, a, a pro Professor Walter Williams. He has the book, The Historical Origin of Christianity. And he kind of resents the use of the word Negro. He said, well, you call ourselves Negro. You know, we say it pejoratively meaning that, you know, the weird, weird, Negro means dead, you know, mentally dead. He said, but we did more when we were Negroes than we are, than we've done being so-called Africans. And it goes back to all these inventions. But Dr. Welsing helped me understand this shifting of offense. And you got to do offense, defense. You got to know how, when to play offense, when to play defense, and when to shift from one to the other to make that transition. But her analysis, laying it down, helps me clarify, okay, this is what we're doing. And I'm seeing now, you know, these white people, man, that's why they brought Ronald Reagan in. That was defense. Because, hey, we're playing, we're on offense. Civil Rights Act, or Civil Rights Movement, that was really offense. Even though, yeah, they beat us, but wait, we came, we came at them. So now there's another word I want to interject into this conversation, and that is counter-offense. You see, so we were, they're playing defense, we're on offense, then they are trying to be on offense, now we got to come back with counter offense. We've got to take it to them. I'm looking at this. I looked at this video. It's very fascinating. It's called uh, Air Fights. I think it was about World War II and the different pilots. There was, I think, a German pilot that came up with this, these eight steps that a pilot has to engage in in, in air fight. And one is... Um, well, I think it's the second, the second dictum he calls them. He said the second one is never run from your opponent. You turn and you face your opponent. And this is what we have been doing. We have been facing our opponent and everything they do, the AIDS virus. Uh, Dr. Leon Horowitz came out with the book Emerging Viruses. AIDS virus, that's defense on the part of the white people. 
uh, it was disclosed that the SARS virus that they tried to put on the, uh, China, that's defense. So I hope that, you know, this is something that we kind of, we got to look at, I think, a little closer. But all this goes, all this is foundational, conceptual understanding brought forward to us by Dr. Wilson. And so I'm looking at all of this in, in, in this idea of the team concept, offense, defense, strategy, movement, and that's what makes her the ultimate mathematician in my estimation. So she's a glorious person. You know, she always, and Dr. Len Jeffries brought this out. We heard him speak about her. He was very good friends with her. And he said he first met her in California. She, this sister, she comes in, and she had this afro. And she's had her hair natural all of these years. I mean, that's a statement just by itself about black love. And then she talks about Asar. This goes back to ancient Kemet. Uh, there is the immaculate conception. Asar, Aset, and the baby Heru. And she calls Asar the Lord of the perfect black. And I've added to that. I said, yes, Asar is Lord of the perfect black utmost black magnificent Asar. You see? So she has given us a lot, man. You know, just a very, very high class human being. And if you want to look at a human being, she is a human being. And her spirit, to me, will never die. I do libation. I call her, and they, they told us at the memorial, you always call her name, and I will always do that. I will always call the name of Dr. Frances Cresswell, Queen Mother, and really, she should be referred to as Divine Supreme Goddess Queen Mother Frances Cresswell. That's how we should always refer to her. Divine Supreme Goddess Queen Mother Dr. Francis Chris Wilson. I say. Yeah, I can yeah, I can say a lot more about her, but you know, and you look at these different areas of um The, the, you know, the different, I call it the different cells, S-E-L-V-E-S. And, uh, I mean, she was, you know, of course, she was at the pinnacle, at the top in terms of her psychology. And this is where the war is. The war is against us psychologically. That's really where the, the main barrage is coming from on that white side is psychological. She had that down. She could deflect 
all of that. She said, don't call yourself minority. Don't say that you are going to the crib. <laughs> don't call yourself third world. I got this friend, she was saying she was listening to a hip-hop artist in Africa. He's in the heart of Africa. He calling, he's calling himself a minority. So that's, that clearly demonstrates that he is a victim of psychological warfare. She was, to a great extent, into the culture. She understood the value of culture. And um, that has a very important role to play because culture, I know Neely Fuller says, culture is what people are doing when they're doing it. But Dr. Asa Hilliard, another grandsister, he has many books. One is, if you go online, I'm sure it's online by now, it's Free Your Mind, Return to the Source. And he says Africa is the source, and Kemet is the foundation of the source. Matter of fact, he has a tape called Kemet, uh, The Keys. I'm not, it's not Keys to the Colors. I don't remember the full title. But um, he says that, you know, Free Your Mind, Return to the Source, and that culture is the glue to keep people, that keeps people together. And culture does simply tell you what you should do, what you should not do. It tells you, furthermore, what is right and what is wrong. You see, that's the value of culture. What is right, what is wrong. What's relevant, what's irrelevant. You know, what's for you, what's against you. So she understood to a great extent that. And then economics, I think that she was very good in terms of her economic understanding. You know, you buy, you spend money. I'm going to give you a word that I invented. Maybe I didn't. I haven't looked it up in the dictionary yet. Frugalization. Frugalize. Don't spend money where you're not wanted where the people disrespect you and where people don't take that money and put part of it back into your community. So frugalize. Frugalization. So she was she understood that. And then you go to the area of education, of course she was at if on a scale from zero to ten, she was education, and I don't just mean book education, and I say in one of my books, that there are three types of education. There is book education, there's street education, and there is system education, understanding the system. And she, I don't know about the street part, but I know that she understood the system from top to bottom, and she definitely had the book education. She read all the newspapers. And so I tell black people, man, you got to read the newspaper. I was just, just this evening, pull up next to this brother. And I know that brothers, what they do, one of the first things a majority of them do when they get in the car, first thing they do is they put on music. Come on, man, there's war against you and you putting on music. I know Dr. Welsing, first thing she does, I will bet. Turn on the news. What's going on? She wants to know. 
That's why she said people, black people say, hey, yo, what's going on? What's up? Because they don't know what's going on. But she was not like that. And we heard her sister speak because, uh, you know, she lost her other sister. So there were three, three sisters in the family. And the, the other sister passed. Um, I don't know. I think it was, I don't remember when, but I know the other sister passed. But the one that, that is still here said that Dr. Wilson cut out news articles all the time. And that's why I, I was doing that as well. Saying, hey, this is important. People, we need to know this. Black, I used to say black people need to know this, so we cut out these news articles. And, um... So in terms of education, yes. Hold on one second, brother. Mm -hmm. So in terms of education, she had education. And again, I emphasize, education doesn't mean going to school. It can mean that, but that's why I make the distinction, thanks to Dr. Wilson, that there's a difference between having a degree and having an education. And a lot of people have degrees, but they do not have an education. So these three types of education, there may be others, but the three that I know of, system, book education, to street education. And that means you've got to know what's happening in the street, you know, when you travel. So I tell brothers, don't get high, don't be walking around high in the street, smoking weed. You know, that's a that's suicide. The white people, Dr. Wellsing understood this, the white people, the police, they bring the drugs in the community. They lace the drugs with all of these chemicals, and the chemicals are even more lethal now than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that's why these babies are born emotionally underdeveloped intellectually underdeveloped, these brothers and sisters smoking weed, staying up late. I don't know if people realize this, um, is that the most important part of the evening, 10 p.m. to 2 p.m., to 2, to 2 a.m., 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., because that is when Dr. Wells, and again, here we go, the melanin kicks in. And this is when the body is repairing itself. This is when the pineal gland is, is, is operating. As a matter of fact, I heard a lecture, a discussion not too long ago where the guy said that when the pineal gland is not functioning at capacity, it leads to early death. So here we go. You know, black people are up partying. They're going to the party at 1 and 2 o'clock. So she understood this. As a psychiatrist, she knew about the mind and the functioning of the different parts of the brain. And she knew that drugs would destroy the, the different parts of the brain in terms of people fully understanding the environment that they're in. So she knew that. So in the education area, she was at the top. She, on the scale from zero to 10, 
I would give her a 10 on that. So psychological, I'd give her a 10. Culture, probably maybe an 8, 7, 8. Economics, 10. Education, 10. Health, nah, question. You know, it's questionable. Maybe 6, 7. But then we go into uh, the next round would be the spiritual. And she's definitely a spiritual person because spiritual to me means having, first of all, being connected with your racial relatives. To have that understanding that we are, because of our melanin, we are all racial relatives no matter where we are on the globe. So she understood that. That's why she talked about melanin. And she always spoke. She was always a keynote speaker at the melanin conferences. She understood the value of melanin. And she said, how do you protect your melanin? Can you protect your melanin? And then you go into the social and then the political. So she was really a... So I say, man, she's a divine supreme, divine supreme goddess, queen mother, utmost black magnificent, Dr. Francis Cresswell. So I'll, I'll just conclude that. I mean, I don't know if I can say anything else about her, but uh, she definitely had an impact on my learning. And as I said, I met her. Um, well, I, heard, I, didn't, I don't know if I met her actually in 75. I heard her speak in 75. But I heard her again uh, last May. Professor Griff brought her to Atlanta, she and uh, Dr. Marimba Ani. And they were both on the same program, and I heard both of them speak. And then Dr. Welsing was at the NBOC, that's National Black United Front Conference. She spoke then, and, man, I got a chance to take a picture with her. I think it's on my website. I thought it was lost. And uh, I said to her, I said, Dr. Welsing, I heard you speak in 1970. I said, 40 years ago. I think it was 1975. She said, wow, we really go back. I said, yeah, we do. <laughs> so I really enjoy I really love that sister, man. I'll never, um, I will never forget her. And anytime I do libation, yeah, I'm calling her name. And we ask these ancestors to come and help us and give us guidance, give us the understanding, the strength to uh, fight against the enemy so that we can achieve our goal. You know, our mission is, you know, I'm, I'm going to interject my personal ideas now. You know, there's no other reason for us to be on the planet other than to solve this problem. She talks about bringing justice to the planet. So that would be in the political area, to bring justice to the planet. But on my, I have this paradigm, and under political, in my paradigm, it says white people, this on the white side of the board, there are like five aspects on the white side of the board under political. The first one is that they are always, that's A-L-L, always at war. That's what they are. They're always at war. The second one is, and Dr. Welsing and Nelly Fuller understood this, the second aspect is 
confusion. Create a lot of confusion amongst the people. Have the people help the skelter, pell-mell, running around all over the place, bumping into each other. No focus. Right? When you don't have focus, you don't know where you're going. Um, the next one is, and this is the one that I love, that the white people never want you to come to a conclusion. Just keep doing the same thing over and over again, never stopping to think, to come, well, hey, where is this going? Where are we going with this? Where is this leading? You know, just stay locked into a paradigm that has no end game. So now I'm in, interjecting my stuff into this. You know, no end game. Just keep, yeah, just keep doing that. Fine. See, my end game is black liberation. That's the last move in my end game. So those are the three so far. Always at war, the white people continue to create confusion, make sure people never come to a conclusion. And the last two, destruction and death. Now, I am totally against television. I don't have a television. I kick the TV out of the door. When the white people say, oh, you got to have this certain box and you got to do this, I say, yo, you can have your TV. There's nothing on it. And I heard Dr. Welsing years ago speak the statement about the media and television. She said, there's nothing on there but death and dying and death and dying and death and dying. And I have added, you know, it's nothing but sex depravity, backstabbing. I mean, if you really want to learn about white people, just really look at television intelligently if you're going to look at it at all. But when I heard her say that, man, it sent a chill to me. She said, death and dying, death and dying, death and dying. That's what it is. And... Uh, so I think that's uh, those are my comments about her. And if if a black women could, if they had to emulate any sister on the planet to carry themselves with dignity, it would be Dr. Wilson. This whole thing about the mini skirts and what's the other thing they wear? These little string things and. You know, their boobs hanging out and all of that. Yo, man, where you get that from? <laughs> who taught you how to do that? You know who taught them how to do that? The white people taught them how to do that. So Dr. Welsing walks with dignity. She's a proud African woman. And this is the model that sisters should, should emulate. Dr. Francis Chris Wellesley. And in the future, now, we know how the white people are. They're going to finally, somewhere down the line, they're going to try to make her an integrationist and, you know, do all kind of alter her image, distort what she had to say, misinterpret it. But I think we have so much information, it might be hard to do that. But look out for that. You know, you might see her they, you know, they, they're so tricky. They might put in a perm somewhere down the line. 
So you you know, just look out. I have this thing that war is being waged against us. War is being waged against us. Now, when you know war is being waged against you by the white man and the white woman, it comes in different forms and tricks. So don't be deceived. Because if you are deceived, you will be a victim of the different forms and tricks that they bring forward. But even, but worse, for those who don't even know that war is being waged against them, not only will they surely be defeated, they will be killed. Furthermore, not only will they be defeated and killed when they don't even know war is being waged against them, they will be duped, unwitting co-conspirators in their early demise. So Dr. Welsing has enabled me to come up with that understanding. Not only is war being waged against us, but know that it's coming in different, has different forms, that there are many tricks embedded in the different forms. And if we don't know that, we surely will be defeated and killed. But if we don't even know that war is being waged against us, not only will we be defeated, we will be, we will be co-conspirators. In fact, we will accelerate our own subtle suicide when we don't even know that war is being waged against us. So I think that Dr. Wilson would say, I don't know, I'm just surmising that she would say the perfect slave is the one who doesn't even think that he's a slave. But what she tried to do was to get us out of a slave mentality, something that was superimposed on us by external forces. And so what she tried to do was elevate us. In fact, she elevated our understanding to see the global dynamic that we're involved with. And so you have to under I think it's important to understand the how the system is set up to destroy us. And so she laid that out for us uh, in her book, her great book, The ISIS Papers, and in all of her lectures. One of the things I love about her, she didn't deviate. She was steadfast. You know, this is what's up. This is how it's going. This is how it's going down. This is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to do. So she had the solutions for us. So I'll conclude my remarks about Dr. Welsing there. Context of white supremacy. Dr. Kamal Kamban, always a pleasure to hear from him. Uh, you can again uh, visit his website, 
uh, Kamau Kambon dot O R G Kamau Kambon dot O R G should be linked uh, if you are listening at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, you'll see uh, you can just uh, click his name uh, if you are listening there. Uh, and it'll take you right to the website. He has, uh, as I said, you can see some of the articles that he's written. He has his books uh, for sale. Many of them we've talked about before, The Blackest Book, uh, and many other uh, commentaries that he uh, has written, uh, some that we've discussed previously on the program. Uh, you can just go right to the website and uh, pick those copies up there. Uh, you can contact him directly if you are so inclined. Uh, just go to the website, kamalcambon.org. G. Context of white supremacy. Uh, I didn't laugh, but uh, there are many, many things I could touch on from what he shared. But uh, one of the things that stood out when he was talking about uh, encouraging uh, black people to check the news, uh, check news sites, um, it stood out to me as important because, number one, Dr. Welsing talked about that all the time on this program, read the newspaper. I mean, she said it almost every time that she came to this program, in addition to black self-respect and refrain from name calling other black people, uh, but checking the news. And she would, uh, I feel like almost every time she would reference Dick Gregory and she would talk about the time that she was going to buy newspapers and Dick Gregory was present and Dick Gregory uh, she, I guess she was buying two or three newspapers and uh, Dick Gregory uh, bought no, more newspapers than she did. I think she bought like maybe, you know, two, three, four, five newspapers and Dick Gregory uh, bought like, you know, 10, 20 of them. Um, I think that is uh, extremely important uh, just to kind of keep that in mind. I had a listener contact me uh, just recently within the last couple days and he said, uh, we, you, it seems like on the cows, you all spend a lot of time talking about different news reports and playing news articles. Certainly, that's a big component of the uh, compensatory call-in, which it is. Uh, and he said uh, how – and this was a younger person. He said he was in his 20s. He said, uh, how, uh, how would you encourage or what would you recommend for me to just ways that I can start doing that? And that was one of the exact things that I said to him. I said, uh, anytime that you get in a vehicle – uh, as opposed to turning on music, if you, I don't know if you have to commute, if you commute like for work or if you have to commute for school or whatever the case may be, uh, devote at least, you know, 20% of your time uh, to listening to the news. Um, find a station, if it's a local station uh, where they play news, talk about the news, uh, you should listen to it. Um, if you, if you don't want to listen in your vehicle or, or if you take the train or something like that, if you're not specifically driving uh, to work, uh, which you can do if you have a portable uh, device, which many people do at this point. Uh, you can download uh, news programs there. A lot of the content that they have on uh, NPR and a lot of the other uh, news uh, talk programs, you can download, you can stream uh, the material so you can listen to it that way. You can download it and just have it uh, on your device, your player, whatever the case may be. Uh, that's one way uh, that you can keep up with the news. I would certainly encourage uh, if you are getting dressed like before you're leaving, if you're going to school, if you're going to work, 
and you have a television, you can have the news on. You can have your local news on. Find out what's happening in your particular area, wherever you happen to be in the world. Uh, if you like national programs, certainly they have uh, a wealth uh, of national uh, news programs that you could be listening to, uh, following, paying attention to what's happening. Uh, CNN, lots of other channels. Uh, you can listen to Black Talk Radio Network, uh, Mr. Scotty Reed. Uh, they have news programs uh, where they're talking about things that are happening locally, nationally, globally. Uh, it's just it's a myriad of different ways that you could be doing this uh, as you're getting uh, dressed to start your day, prepare to go out, do whatever you're going to do. Uh, you can look at the newspaper. Uh, and this is when even if you don't read the whole newspaper and I've heard white people make this suggestion, if you are pressed for time or whatever the case happens to be, even if you just are making a glance at the newspaper, check out some of the reports. What are they talking about? What is the headline? A lot of times now they will have like snippets of the article where it kind of tells you uh, this is what the post is about. These are some of the key topics uh, that are going to be made uh, in this report. They have that a lot of times because they know a lot of people are feeling uh, time crunched. Uh, so they might not be able to read uh, the entire post. That's one of the things that you can do. And I, I know for myself, even though I do spend a lot of time. Uh, checking news reports, I will just glance uh, at the newspaper and see what they're talking about. Uh, I'll just look and see, well, okay, what's the big headline story? Uh, what is, what are some of the recurring stories that I'm seeing being reported in the news? Just little things like that. Even sometimes I'll see something if I look at like the local newspaper, because I've said consistently, I sometimes do a poor job checking the local uh, newspaper. I'll just check and I'll see something and be like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know about that. And then I can boop, once I get some free time, if I'm in uh, transit or whatever, once I get settled down, I'm back at my residence for the day. I can go online. I can look. I can find it and do more research about it. That has happened tons of times. Just taking, uh, you know, two, three minutes <laughs> to just glance over. You could just kind of flip through, look at the story. OK, boop, 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 boop. Just be informed. I know Dr. Welsing's sister, uh, Lauren Cress Love, when I talk, I'm, I'm not sure if she emphasized it when she was on the program, but I know she said it to me when we spoke. Uh, and she said, when I went to Dr. Welsing's house, this is Lauren Cress Love, she said, when I went to her house, man, she had articles and notes about all kinds of stuff when she was checking the news and just being informed. That is so, so important. Uh, there is a war being waged against black people worldwide 24-7. One of the most important things that you can do is make an effort to be informed, paying attention, read the news or listen to the news or watch the news. However, whatever your medium is, uh, really make that a, a or important part of what you do. And I would say if that's something that you can do in the presence, if you have offspring, oh, man, <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, Counter racist work right there where they can see that you make it an, uh, you make it a serious priority to be informed again i'm not saying that every time that you get in your vehicle or whatever it is if you're in transit going to school going to work that you have to listen to the news but that should be at least uh try to build so that if it's five days a week you're in transit maybe you can start out two days a week two out of the five i will make sure that i'm listening to the news and then if you can build so that maybe three out of five, maybe four out of five, or maybe you split, maybe on the way to work, I'll listen to the news. And then maybe on the way home, I'll listen to music or, you know, whatever, whatever you do. Uh, but that's one of the things that you can do that I think is so important. And I know Dr. Kamal Kanban and Dr. Welsing 
uh, would co-sign on that wholeheartedly. It is vital uh, to pay attention to what's happening locally, nationally, globally. That's one of the things that I did not do when I was more confused about racism, white supremacy. I did not uh, read the newspaper or check the news or what have you. I just didn't do it. I didn't devote any time to it. You would be amazed (laughs) how much material is about racism, white supremacy directly in the news all the time. Read, read, read. Anywho, uh, folks have commentary that they uh, would like to share uh, relative to uh, any, I guess, aspect of what we have been uh, discussing, talking about, uh, certainly uh, anything that you heard from Dr. Kamal Kambon, feel free, uh, his commentary on Dr. Welsing. Uh, If it's commentary related to some of the things that we talked about earlier in the program related to uh, Kevin Durant uh, and... uh, his exit, I even someone posted in the news, uh, they posted an article where uh, a white person is burning, I guess, some sort of effigy of Kevin Durant where they're lynching him. It looks like they have a rifle and are firing rounds at his jersey or what have you. The same, you know, tacky antics uh, that we've seen before. But if you have comments on that, if you have comments on the uh, colorism aspect that we talked about with Michael Rappaport, you can feel free to chime in on that uh, as well. The number to dial is 641 715 three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate once again that number six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate and i definitely want to make sure i get in one more time that is not the entirety of the conversation that audio segment that you heard from dr cambon that is a portion of the conversation and i think he said that he might be willing to make the entire thing available uh once that if that is the case uh and if he's willing to do so i will let folks know how they can access it. I'll post a link or, you know, whatever, whatever he does, if he wants to uh, make the whole thing available. Uh, but I will let folks know uh, when I find out additional information. Uh, all the folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, line should be open. We'll just do it that way. Uh, feel free to chime in. Just watch the background noise if you know you uh, have things going on uh, behind you. Uh, all the folks who dialed in should be with us. Ladies first. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to touch on uh, what Dr. Kamal Kambon was saying about Dr. Francis Cross Wilson. I remember back in the 90s, every day when I used to come home from work, I used to turn on the Phil Donahue show, and um, most days it didn't have really have that much going on, and I would just see what it was about, and then I'd turn it off. But this one day, I saw this regal black woman sitting in a chair with his afro, and, and she looked so noble. And uh, Doctor, I mean, uh, Phil Donahue was, uh, you know, quoting some of her, some some of her book, and he was talking about the balls and stuff. And of course, white folks in the audience they were twittering and giggling like they always do when somebody brings up sex act there, like a bunch of those school children and stuff. And they were they were asking her questions, and they were. And they were um, making comments at her, and she dodged every one of them like a bullet. I mean, she she was badass. I'm sorry for 
for cousin. But I'm like, who is this woman? And, you know, I, I never seen anybody like her before, you know. And it wasn't, at that time, of course, we didn't have the Internet and everything. And it wasn't too much later, much, much later that, you know, I found out who she was. And um, um, also I want to say uh, all around the country this 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 uh, past holiday, uh, you know, I always look. I always look at the uh, the news on Facebook and on and on the other sites and stuff. And they had about five or six uh, uh, things going down where, where where white folks just clowned big time. I think it was somewhere either down in Texas or South Carolina. They had a uh, was some kind of country club. It was over a hundred of them, and somebody got shot, and they was fighting. And then it and then once it was at a Kenny Chesney concert, a bunch of them got to fighting. And I think in uh, Columbus, Ohio, they had a close. I think it was in Columbus, Ohio. They had to close the the fireworks area because they was the, the whites were fighting and stuff. And then it was one of the, it was somewhere in Michigan, and and they're gonna try to talking about oh it was them from Chicago from the hood, but they were just saying. I mean that was the the commentators were just saying stuff like that, but the pictures all you saw was all whites, and like you know they all were trying to trying to put that stuff on us. But I mean, all over the country yesterday they were just clowning big time, and I'm and I, I love I love to see when they when they kill and hurt one another. And uh, that thank you for letting me talk. That's all I want to say right now. Yes, sir. Absolutely, a great Gus, a great show, Gus. Um, Dr. Cambon is right on, um, right on point. This is uh, he uh, spoke about Dr. Wellman. You know, um, I just can't believe he said the first time we uh, ever saw her speak loud was in 1975, and it just shows you how monumental the amount of work. You know she's done because you know I think I'm old, but I wasn't even born in 1975 yet, so it's like wow. Um, as far as um the, the the basketball stuff, um, heard a lot of hatred from um, that event around New York City today. Um, very much in line with the same way uh, it was skewed at LeBron when he went to go play in Miami. Um, they hate them, you know, they hope they lose. Um, and you go from um, having probably the the most popular team last year. I mean, I've in all my years, um, I've never saw so many Golden State fans just pop out the blue here in New York. And, um, you know, you see the Terry sneakers and the, the jerseys and everything, and now it's like they hate them, <laughs> which, which is... Um, Understood based off the way the game is played, but um, I think as a as a having a better understanding of racism, you know, I think a black man should be able to go play where he wants to and um, make as much as you can. Um, I I have never heard of any other black person, and it was really strange because um, when you when you kind of mentioned that report, um, make a make any reference to Perry's color or being light-skinned, I've never heard it. Um, not here in New York, at least, um, amongst the people I speak to, and I speak to quite a few people about basketball. Um, 
that he's been one of the everyone's favorite players. They love him. They love his dad. Um, I don't think his mother is white. I, I don't think that um, he, he's mixed race. In my opinion, just a light skinned black guy. His grandparents might have had some um, white classification in them, but I don't think he's a white person or, or a half white person. I think he's a full fledged black person. Um, However, um, Clay Thompson, on the other hand, he has a white mother. You know, he doesn't get that same type of hatred that I've heard um, from that report we had got before. But um, I think it was a, a very good show. And uh, also, as far as the news goes, um, I'm sure as you know, Gus, you know, I see I stuff all the time that I read, um, you know, that I, as I'm, you know, surfing, usually while I'm working. And um, also, um, you know, you're right on point with the newspapers. Because um, I tell you, one thing I missed about working at a law firm is all those law review journals from about every big city and state has one. And, you know, you just pick the library up and grab about five or six. And, man, it's all about all the cases that are about racism. Um, just seeing how some of this stuff plays out and making comparisons to the same things that happen to white people is just astounding. Um, so uh, it's impossible, I think, any paper in America to pick up and not find something about racism, especially if you're looking for it, you'll find it. You know, but now my life. Absolutely. I can co-sign all of the above. He, Mr. Uh, Thomas in New York, he does send a lot of information, as do many, many, many cows listeners from all over the world, uh, whether it's emails, social media, they will post stuff on the Facebook pages, or they'll uh, tweet things to me. Uh, tons of folks. Uh, Bruce Fine and, and just lots of folks. And, and for years now, many, many folks have mailed a lot of material. Some of it that I use on the compensatory call-in on the weekend, some of those audio clips that come from you all. Uh, that is absolutely, I certainly appreciate all of the effort. But uh, absolutely, if you're looking for it, even if you're not looking for it, the racism is going to be there in the newspaper. And Dr. Wellsing used to emphasize that all the time. If you look at the news, they are constantly talking about the system of white supremacy. Sometimes it'll be explicitly stated as such. Other times they'll use other terms, uh, you know, prejudice or discrimination or uh, racially motivated or what have myriad of other terms, but you will know this is what they're talking about is white supremacy, racism. And even a lot of times it's being indirectly uh, discussed, even a lot of reports where they don't mention race specifically. Uh, it still is informing you about racism, white supremacy. Just uh, really make an effort to uh, check the news on, on a regular basis. It is astounding. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that I really had just tremendous regard for both Dr. Welsing and uh, Dr. Kamal Kambon and many others is that when they give their presentation on racism, white supremacy and, and state their views, just both of them, they make sure to provide evidence and they back it not just with historical context, but with things that are happening right now in the news. That's something that I really try to uh, borrow from them uh, and utilize myself just using things that are happening right now so that we don't think when we're talking about white supremacy racism this is just something that happened you know 50 years ago back in Dr. King's days back in Rosa Parks days Ida B. Wells this is something from 100 years right now 2016 uh, other folks that we have not heard from uh, if you dialed in uh, you should be with us may I be heard yes ma'am good evening this is the female caller from New York um uh, first of all, uh, good evening to the callers and um, listeners. 
and to you, Gus, and thank you for um, having Dr. Camp on, on the program this evening. I missed him, and um, I missed his, his insight into his thing, into many things, and it was like a double treat to have him um, speak on um, divine goddess, queen mother, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I felt like both of them were in the room. Uh, with regard to the analogy he made about how whites are on, actually on the um, defense and um, black people are on the offense, I have always had that thought in my, um, in my melanin, but I've never really expressed it because I thought people would think that, especially counter-racists in all that we observe and we analyze and we break down, and we try to um, sort of just demystify and eliminate confusion about that that would not even be logical. But as I tell my clients all the time about their hair, that there has to be something great and powerful and strong about your natural hair for them to be so, for there to be so many industries to, to try to suppress the way it looks. For there to be so many messages to tell you that you can't wear it this way and you can't wear it that way. One of the young ladies who recently um, went to the Marines and actually sat in front of, um, I guess what you would call uh, uh, some sort of um, a tribunal or something, was, was about how black women wear their hair in the Marines. And um, this is a friend of mine, and she set precedent. And they relaxed the, uh, I don't mean to use that word, but they um, changed, modified the, uh, the uh, regulations on how black women can wear their hair in the Marines. Um, they can wear locks and they can wear braids now. So I said to her, I don't really think that you understand how important and how powerful that is. I said, because you see, usually... You, you know, depositions and all of the things that you did, you know, in front of these supposedly important military people, usually they're talking about war and crimes and injustices and things against people and budgets, and they're creating policy around those things. This was about black hair. So when he touched on that point about how we are really on the offense and they are on the defense, that resonated in me because I've always believed that. There has to be something awesome and powerful and great about a people who everything was stolen from them and who has the world looking upon us as if we were, are nothing when, as Dr. Wellsen said, we are the original people on the planet and we should walk and be dignified like that. So when he said that, it totally resonated with me and um, I appreciated hearing that from him. And um, I don't know, Gus, if you have a little time later on, I'll stay on the line. Um, I just kind of had a field note that I wanted to share because I experienced something last week, and I'm kind of confused about it. And I want to make sure that I might, I'm kind of looking at this from the right perspective. And um, I just would like to get your opinion on it. But if not, that's fine. I'll save it for Saturday. And that's all I had. I'll mute my line. Oh, for sure. We'll definitely uh, make time if it's a question or I don't scenario, whatever you whatever it is you want to uh, present. We'll definitely make sure we make time for that today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Wow, just to kind of piggyback off of um, what the sister was saying about hairstyles, one thing that I've learned about where, how we wear our hair, one thing I've learned about white supremacy is whatever white people don't want you to do is what you should be doing. Whatever they are staunchly against as, as a black person or non-white person is exactly what you should be doing. And um, when she brought up the way that we wear our hair, it just really made me think um, there is definitely something to our hair beyond just making a visual statement. Um, a lot of the hairstyles, like when you look at the flat top hairstyle, um, also if you look in Egypt, um, they had a crown called the blue crown, which is identical to a hairstyle that the, uh, the Tutsi males wear to this day. So the vast majority of popular hairstyles in black culture were actually crowns um, that were worn by nobility and sometimes um, also uh, kings and, 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 and queens in different African traditional societies. And um, definitely there is, there is something to the way that you express yourself with your hair. And that's one thing that I learned when I went through initiation. Um, I have my hair in locks and I learned the importance of locks in comedic culture. Um, and that's something that I explained to my son. He actually had, had gotten locks himself. He had been wearing them for about a little over a year. And he had told me once his hair locked, there were he started to have a lot of um, vivid dreams and a lot of different spiritual experiences that he relayed to me. And he has said a lot of what I discussed with him as far as the, the spiritual power of wearing your hair and locks and the responsibility as far as spiritually speaking that comes with it, he got a much deeper understanding when he actually did so. And he recently um, actually combed his locks out, which was something he didn't think he could do, but I told him how to do it and he did it. And um, he had just been going through some things, and he felt like he was carrying that energy in the crown of his head. So I said, well, you can either cut your locks off or you can comb them out, which he did. And as soon as he combed them out, he felt an immediate difference in how he felt spiritually in the crown of his head. So these things are very, very important. Um, to speak about Michael Rappaport, I would say he's probably one of the best white racists you can watch to understand how refinement works. Um, even when I looked at Beats, Rhymes, and Life, the documentary he did on Trial Court Quest, um, Rest in Peace to Fife, um, I, I just felt like he reveled in the animosity between the different members in the group and hearing other artists take on the animosity within the group. And he interviewed De La Soul, um, I believe it was um, the DJ he had interviewed, and they were discussing um, you know, how much it hurt them to see them in such disarray and things like that. So I just think he's one of the most refined white supremacists ever. I don't know how um, Spike Lee was able to get past that tacky, trashy comment that he made. And if you look at all of his movies, all of his, the, the choices of his most popular films, he's always either raping a black woman, playing a white supremacist, or killing black people. And to me, when you talk about looking at a person's body of work to kind of get an understanding of their psychopathology, I think he's a case study in something like that. And um, Dr. Kamal Kanban, one of my favorite guests you have, I think he's one of, the, one of the greatest revolutionary thinkers, and it's always a pleasure and honor to hear him speak. Um, that term that he coined, grandcestor, I actually utilize it, and I always give him um, credit for that. And actually, the first place I used it was on a public access show that I um, did in dedication to Dr. Ben. I appeared on it, and I used that term, and I gave him the credit for it. And every time I use that term, I give him the credit because I think he's absolutely right and accurate in everything that he described as far as what a grandcestor is. And there's only certain people who 
deserve that moniker. Dr. Ben absolutely did. Dr. Wilson always will. And there are others as well. But um, I just think he's phenomenal. His, his thought process, his understanding of the way the system works. Um, matter of fact, there's a great little clip of him on YouTube where they call, they say the most serious uh, African man in the world, I think is what it's called. It's about maybe less than 10-minute segment he did on C-SPAN that's mind-blowing. So if anybody can get that, get to peak that, it's, on, it's still on there. It's very popular. He put it down on that. And um, I just say, for now, I'll say thank you for taking my call. Oh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is um, when you talk about the news, I found it um, very interesting and very true what you said by Dr. Cambon and Dr. Welsing in reference to the news. When I was younger, I didn't really watch the news much except for getting like the weather, simply because I felt it was just too depressing for me to even pay attention to. And as I got older and more uh, refined in my understanding of white supremacy, um, it is one of the most important things you can do because it helps you be aware as close to up to the minute as possible as to how these white people are functioning to try and destroy us. Um, when I watch the news now, I would say 85 to 90% is white supremacy. It's just how it's presented, what they're saying, the subject matter, and how uh, their report plays out. But I would say 85 to 90% of what I see that's not the weather, and even in traffic, it's white supremacy. It's either white people... Uh, jockeying for position against other white people as to whose variation of white supremacy will reign supreme or refined practices of white supremacy against black people specifically and non-white people in general. So I think that's one of the greatest things that you've ever, excuse me, ever discussed and propagated is the whole idea of really reading and studying the news and being as, as abreast as possible, um, up to the minute if possible on current events. And with that, I'll mute my line. Thanks again. For sure, for sure. Uh, folks, we have not heard from anybody uh, who had a hand up that we haven't heard from who had commentary. Feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, um, I just want to say good evening to everybody. Um, thanks, Gus, for um, playing that clip of uh, Dr. Cambon. Uh, again, he is he is a titan to me. One of the you know best guests you've. Um, had on your uh, on the uh, program, uh, along with Dr. Chris uh, Welsing. Um, I would like to say, basically, I wanted to hit on a few things, uh, particularly with you know these white people again that play sports that you know black people are known for playing, particularly basketball, football. White people that are uh, into you know hip hop. Uh, white people that are in sexual arrangements or tragic arrangements with, you know, non-white people, particularly black people, uh, white people that, you know, speak a lot of so-called slang or whatever that black people are known for uh, speaking. You know, uh, we really, and I want to say we should really be teaching this to especially young, young kids or children, um, you know, the younger people. Because I have a feeling that the, uh, I guess, I think a lot of older people are more confused um, or, you know, old and young people are confused. But I think a lot of uh, older people are, are just, I guess, stuck in their ways as, as as far as viewing white people and how they practice racism. But we have to be really uh, pay particular attention to you know, white, these white people that um, take part in these things that I just said. Um, as far as, like, sports, it's it's kind of like uh, I, I wanted to relate this to I, I have two um, 
two offspring. Uh, one is a little older, one is a teenager, one is like, uh, you know, eight years old. So I really, I try to teach them both, but I definitely uh, focus more on the 16-year-old. But uh, I just try to tell her how amazing it is, how racism is basically inundated in, you know, all aspects of life and uh, sports too as well. And, I, I, you know, I talk about her, about like Floyd Mayweather, how, um, you know, he gets treated similarly similarly to how Jack Johnson was treated way back in when he was uh, – fighting, he was still alive, and Muhammad Ali, and I just try to, you know, tell how it evolves as far as how racism is practiced with, with these uh, with these people. Um, even with, uh, man, I wanted to throw this in too, I'm, I'm kind of going all over the place, but uh, just, I, I noticed that with um, prominent black um, people that are in sports, something typically happens to them, something bad or some type of uh, some type of scandal or something. And I, I pray that, you know, like LeBron James, I hope it doesn't happen to him, but man, I hope I just, I don't know. I just feel like white people are really going to be um, going after him even more that he, uh, you know, he's on top of the world. He's making, I'm not on top of the world, but he's uh, very popular and stuff like that. Things are going good. I hope he doesn't get caught up in any, drugs or he raped somebody raped some white person or did it or had some type of infidelity against his wife or molested a child or i don't know i just hope they don't try to bring something upon him uh, in the near future um but uh i just and my last thing i wanted to do again is my thoughts are kind of all over the place uh, I see a lot of people that are you know saying anti-racist things on the internet and on tv just celebrities and stuff, but, you know, they're teaching some of the principles that Neely Fuller and, um, you know, Dr. Uh, Wilson teaches, but the thing that they don't go by or don't utilize themselves is, again, arguing and um, name-calling black people. That's, like, one of the things, and that's something, again, I struggle with myself, but um, that's just, I just noticed that's, like, one of the, the one thing that, uh, quite a few of us really need to tighten up on because we're really quick to, you know, verbally assault another not, uh, black person. And, you know, again, we're ignoring or we're not focusing on white supremacy when we're doing it. So I think we really need to uh, take note of that. Um, but I just noticed that with a lot of uh, people that are, you know, popular on the internet and, and on TV now, just still name calling a lot, quite a bit. Uh, and that, and also my, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, you know, we get in the car sometimes and I, I try, I don't even play the music. And like most of the time I put on the cows and then, uh, one time, and then I told my daughter, yeah, um, yeah, I'm calling into a, a radio show to, you know, speak my thoughts. She's like, Oh, what are you, you calling the cows? And I was, I was kind of happy. I was like, okay, you, you've been paying attention. You've been listening a little bit. And I just, you know, just reiterated what it, you know, what the cow stood for. So I'm thinking a lot of this stuff is starting to sink in or whatever. So, and uh, the only thing I still a little concerned with my younger um, daughter, because again, that white, you know, white supremacist uh, effect on me for my whole life. I'm like, man, is she going to get around some, 
some white people at school and you say, my dad listens to this and my dad teaches that. And, you know, but, you know, you can't get worried about stuff like that. But anyway, that's all I have for now. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. I think that has been brought out before with children. A lot of times things you can do is uh, planting seeds. uh, And if it is true, even if they don't recognize or appreciate it at that very moment, uh, often given time, Truth is truth. People will see the value in in accurate information, even if it takes them a little while to recognize that, oh, yeah, dad was not talking crazy. There is a system of racism, and that is going to be a problem for me. Uh, Anybody that we have not heard from, anybody who had a hand up, uh, who had commentary, folks, please do not wait till the last minute. If you have commentary, things you would like to share on what you uh, heard uh, or other observations, uh, go ahead and get your hand up. Anyone we haven't heard from who called in with a hand up? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I thought, um, so there was, like, uh, Dr. Wilson used to talk about hair a lot, um, um, at Howard, uh, I used to go, um, and, um, I started to think about hair a lot, uh, like, trying to come up just thinking about it, I wasn't trying to come up with something, and then um, I started to think about my upbringing um, in Southern Africa, and um, I remembered like when we were kids, even that whenever our hair was cut, we were told that you would have to like pick up your hair and like you would have to like burn it or like dispose of it, like because we were told like that. Like, people could do things with their hair, like witchcraft or something like that. And there was something that I thought was sort of like a joke, but people still did it. But when I became an adult, adults were still doing it, like, holding dear to their hair, even though they've cut it. But then I started to think about it even deeper, and I realized that in my language, that the word for hair, so, like, the way the word is made up for hair, uh, the beginning of the word is this, is the same as the beginning for the word for medicine. So like hair is like muriri and like uh, medicine is muriana. So I started to think about hair as like medicine and like Dr. Wilson was saying something similar, but she would talk about sort of like how, you know, your hair, you could use it for, like, energy. You don't know, like, antennas and whatnot and how you could, like, sync with the universe and everything. And, well, I didn't think that was a coincidence about the words. I just haven't had time to uh, sort of, like, go back and, like, talk with people and try to get more information about, like, why is this, uh, why are these words so similar? And... Like, what is the power of hair? Because um, so I, I think that's that's something that's very important. Um, oh, yeah, about the reading. Like, she she would always have these pamphlets. And I tried to do a, a good amount of reading, but she would, she would always have, like, stories in there and, like, articles in there that I had, like, that were just amazing. Um, and so I think... 
reading is like so important. Like, um, I've, I mean, it's only recently that I started to sort of focus on, uh, you know, like voices and white supremacy deeper, but I've always been reading, but like now I know like everything that I used to read was about that. So even if, and I don't know, like now that I'm sort of like a, a, a working person and like a professional, whatever that can be, uh, considered you, I don't know how people can go without it. Like there's so much to read, like everywhere, like in school, in in work. There's so much to read, and they even give you more to read on on all these things that you need to know. So, um, yeah, I guess just to say, like reading is fundamental. Um, um, yeah, that's all I had to say. Uh, thank you for taking the call. For sure. Anybody that attended any of Dr. Welsing's lectures uh, at the Crest Welsing Institute uh, over the years, I think she notoriously uh, provided handouts that had lots and lots of news clippings. Uh, that was one of the things that uh, certainly will remain with me for some years to come. Uh, the last uh, institute that she conducted in December of 2015 uh, in that handout uh, one of the pieces uh, that she provided uh, was about that CRISPR technology and uh, Jennifer Doudna, I think that's how you say her name, the white woman who came up with it and how she thought of herself as a freak uh, because she is melanin deficient. Uh, this white woman, uh, suspected white supremacist, and she grew up around a lot of non-white people, and she thought of herself as a freak because of her pale skin. That's how the article began and ended where they're talking about this is the person who came up with this CRISPR technology and because of she because of thinking of herself as a freak, that drove her to become bookish and scientific. He said our enemies are scientific in their terrorism against black people, but that drove her to creating this CRISPR technology, uh, which in and of itself, some people might think of as freakish. Uh, and then the article, it comes to an end and it says she always thinks of herself back growing up in Hawaii around all these non-white people, AKA a freak. Uh, she included that handout, that article uh, in the last handout that she gave at the Welsing Institute that I'd faxed over to her. So absolutely. And I, I can just repeat again, um, the relationship that I had with Dr. Welsing, it was totally a, a connection around information uh, and me just looking to learn as much as I could from her about racism, white supremacy, and then sharing uh, information, things that I came across, things that you all, articles and things, reports that you all found, and, and then the same, just anything that I came across uh, and trying to share that information with her. Um, just absolutely pay attention to the news. It is it is hugely important. That's certainly one that Dr. Welsing and Dr. Cambon would uh, encourage us. That's something that will help us solve this problem, I think. Uh, did we get everybody who had uh, a hand up that we have not heard from? If anybody, if you're listening in and you did, you know, had something that you wanted to add based on uh, any portion of the commentary, feel free to tile in, uh, place a hand up. Uh, if we got everybody, uh, I know folks, if you have other comments, we can get that in as well. Um, and sir, I think uh, the female caller in New York, she had said she had something she wanted to share. Uh, the person 1902, 1902, did you have commentary that you wanted to share? Yes, can I hear Yes, sir. Um, hi to the callers. Good evening, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm the person that I'm going to phrase Trump. That, um, I have a lot of things on my mind as a weight. Um, uh, 
for about, you know, um, a year or two before she passed, I really got to know who she was through the house and mainly during the morning. Uh, she would call in. She had a free line to call in. And I would anticipate that over the year hearing her voice and it, and, and it felt like it was just like a warm feeling because I hadn't felt that. I have a, I'm African-American that mother uh, is. Your line you is know. breaking up a little bit. I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like it's, it's not clear. I don't know if you're on a headset or uh, what the case, but it's, it's just breaking up a little bit. Have you heard now? Uh, if you want to, you can start over with your, your anecdote. I know you said she had an open line and you would call in and gave you a warm feel, but if you could kind of start over just to make sure that everybody is clear on, on what you're sharing, sir. Um, can you hear me again now? We can hear you so far. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I would anticipate her call depending on the subject cause she was going to call and give her side or her her aspirations, and that's when I found out about her her mentor, Mr. Fuller, and um, and that's how I found out about this cows. And I, I've always thought, you know, um, I've had a uh, single male, you know, single parent raised by a woman by by herself. Um, so my imagery, just like any other single male raised by their mother it depends on the mother and how she relays her information or lack thereof. Dr. Welsing, me and my mother would have a, we had a bumpy relationship and it was Dr. Welsing within the last, I'm in my upper thirties and my late thirties. And she kind of, I was always confused about what the relationship was between me and my mother and my sister. I was only male. And she really put it in perspective and, and it made me feel good because i never felt that way about talking to a black woman outside my grandmother who had passed when I was in high school, freshman year. And I listened to her last. I was there when she called into the show. Well, Carl Nelson had her on the 2nd of January and I, I listened to that morning. Over the weekend, it was a what? Therefore, I listened to that live from Carl Nelson. And after that, you know, um, I got on, you know, on, and I was hearing because I'm all, you know, her information. Google already knew, hey, she's in the hospital, blah, blah. And we all know the story. And when I was at work that next day, I mean, I'm going to tell you what, I, you know, I wasn't blubbering, crying, but. Man, I tell you what, it was hard for me. I was shed a tear here and there, and I was wondering why. It would just come out of the blue, and I knew why. I was not going to hear her voice anymore. She's very important, you know, right now, late late 30s, to really understand what this is all about. And I'll sit back and wonder and think about what, Will the white supremacist? Um, you can go through all the history of Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and all the other black. 
You're uh, me now. I'm your line breaking is, up. It's breaking up. Yeah, I don't know if you're. If something I'm sorry, in the man. Area is breaking in. I, I can call. Like, let me try to figure it out and call back. Okay. As soon as you dial back in, we'll get you right back in, so you can pick up and continue with your sharing. I'll look out for him uh, on the switchboard as soon as he uh, dials back in. Uh, if uh, while we're waiting uh, for him to call back, um, I'm sure a whole lot of people. I remember the Facebook posts and the programs that we were doing around the time, right around when she passed. Uh, it was uh, just a, a colossal loss for many, uh, many, many uh, black people around the world. Uh, and even I can say non-white people, individuals who are non-white, non-black, who still had read her work and benefited from her teachings and understanding uh, racism, white supremacy. Uh, it was uh, just a titanic loss. Uh, but uh, again, uh, I would hope uh, that if people have some sort of regard, if Dr. Welsing uh, meant something to us, then we will appreciate and apply what she dedicated so many years to trying to do, and that is inform and heal black people in the way that we conduct ourselves <clears throat> in solving the problem, racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think uh, the caller who's just having some technical issues, I think he dialed back in. We'll see if his line is clear uh, so he can uh, continue uh, with his commentary, and then uh, we'll get the uh, female caller uh, in New York as well, uh, with what she wanted to present. Um, let's see. The mail caller, are you back with us, sir? Let's see if we, uh, we have things fixed up. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm going to try to shorten this up. I apologize. Bad reception. Um, long story short, uh, Dr. Welsing really, really, really means a lot to me, and I know everybody says that, but she really opened my eyes to not blame my mother or the black women around me. Um, I had lost that figure since maybe 94 um, when my grandmother passed. Um, I wonder about the might. What, how will they show it? They're showing it now with the, the vote in um, the UK, Donald Trump emerging through the ranks of the media. I mean, to where they're, you know, I mean, it's obvious, like they would let Howard Dean go yell, but they can let him spew anything. Um, I'm seeing that. And that's when the Trump effect comes in. So I go to myself, why am I feeling like this? Not hysterical, but just, hey, if white men went and got guns, maybe I need to start practicing self-defense. Maximum, uh, I think it was a emergency code or, or Mr. Fuller, what do you would say? And how would they show their might? And I'm scared to say this. I, I hope the black woman, one woman that I look at in the media or when I look at, she, is it is it just me or Michelle Obama becomes beautiful and beautiful every time I see her? She she she's vibrant like every time they put a camera on her, she just glows. She she really glows to me, and. I look at that, and I look at white supremacy, and I go, okay, how would they show their moms here? I worry about our president towards the end of his term. I worry about his daughter and his, daughter and his wife and his children. And I always sit back and go, what will make black people flip out? And I, and I thought about her. 
And I, that's what would make me have a, a pit. I would, I, I would have to sit down for 24 and not talk to people, really get my thoughts in order. If something would, God, God forbid, anything would happen. But I, I, I worry about our mental state as people. We, we flip out over anything. You know, I'm not saying anything. I'll let me retract that. We don't take the appropriate approach to the problem from Freddie Gray to, you know, rioting and all that. Look at all the times people rioted over our black elites being massacred. And I look at that and I go, okay, uh, I just worry about it. I, I really, really think about it. And I wonder myself how I'm going to react united, you know, independent, you know, I, I try to, and I talk to my friends about it. Oh man, you don't know what you're talking, you know, kind of jive stuff. And this is like, you know, if you are, and I just say this to black men, black males, Dr. Kim, Kim, you know, what, who, who you just had on. And I've seen that C-SPAN clip. Yeah. I'm not speaking on way he was coming at it. Cause he was coming strong, but I'm not, I'm protect yourself. If you can do it, because if something was to happen, like I'm thinking, I would think the flip out. And what I, another thing about the Obama effect is that white people got or white, a single white man got guns to, 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 he has enough guns to give a whole town, at least one, you know, at least every white person, one who ain't got a gun and their family of two kids or two girls, two boys, one girl, whatever. He can give a family of three or four or five guns for everyone. And I just worry about black people don't think like that. And it's like, it's, you know, for the ones who are legally and can do it, selling, I just, I really, really feel like you need to think about your family and what you're going to do if that was to happen. But you already know things can happen. I see all these UN, these stories about UN um, or militarized police. And I just feel there's something with the trigger black folks that would start it. And white people got guns and they sitting on it and they ready. And I just sit back and nobody talks about it. We talk about gun violence, but you know, you know, I guess it's taboo for, it seems like it's taboo for black folks to talk about protecting yourself. You know, because, you know, when I made my purchase, I don't think about shooting no black people. I don't think about shooting nobody. But I, I, I worry about, you know, in my lifetime, will I experience the death of, of Dr. Martin Luther King by the hands of a white person? How will I react? Can I, can I, can I expect one of our prominent figures? To me, the closest black thing in that White House is Michelle. And it, you know, I, I, she's so vibrant and people hate her so much. I don't know why she's spoken nothing but good things has been a perfect, perfect, um, first lady. I mean, if anything, look the best out of any first lady ever. So, you know, I, I just worry about that. Think about that. And I talk to my, my, you know, my friends and I try to, you know, get them to open their mind. Like, Hey man, you know, it ain't all about, you know, what's going on today or tomorrow. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's you know, I, a lot of my friends don't even be on Neely Fuller Jr. You know, I just find it, you know, ridiculous when I try to, I put people in my car, let them listen to podcasts, and they just laugh at his talk, his way he talks. They don't even listen. So, you know, like you said, you're not an independent, put your hands up and keep it moving forward. So I just suggest to everybody, just, you know, the black woman is very important. 
you know, and I've, I've forgotten that over my years of growing up. Like I dated white girls and, you know, I'm at the point through the com um, through the cows, Dr. Wellesley, um, Mr. Fuller, I understand I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And I just need to, you know, and I'm in the Midwest in the middle and people just, they're blind to what's going on in front of them. But, you know, um, yeah, I've been rambling. I'm sorry. I'll be on. Right on. Right on. Definitely glad to hear Dr. Welsing. I've been using the word healer. I think that was a major aspect of uh, what she attempted to do uh, in her with her time and uh, immense skill uh, that she had was uh, heal black people uh, and heal some of the relationships. I think she knew that a lot of us carried a lot of trauma as a result of racism, white supremacy, a lot of frustrations with uh, other black people. Uh, and if she was able to do something to try to help mend some of those relationships uh, with the black females in uh, your life, fantastic. I'm not surprised. I'm sure there are numerous black people uh, who have that exact same experience where uh, she was able to help uh, mend some of the traumas uh, that we have uh, been going through under the system of white terrorism. Um, before, uh, or actually, I'll, I'm just double checking to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Uh, folks had anything that we have not heard from uh, before I go to our female caller in New York who uh, had the situation that she wanted to share and perhaps get feedback or thoughts uh yeah, I think we got all the people who dialed in that uh, had a hand up thus far. Uh, female caller in New York, did you have a uh, commentary you wanted to share? Yes, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you for uh, making time and um, uh, to uh, listen to this. So last week I found myself on the um, Upper West Side in Manhattan, and I had to use the restroom, so I went into the local Whole Foods. And I walked into the bathroom store, and I saw this red box on the wall. And I got confused for a minute because I know that that's a red box that you put used hypodermic needles in. So I got confused for a second. I was like, wait a minute, am I in the bathroom or in the doctor's office? And then I tried to really, you know how something happens, and you try to think, has this ever happened to me before? Have I ever seen a hypodermic, a used hypodermic needle box in a bathroom. No. So I went into the next stall. There's like four stalls uh, in this uh, female bathroom. And each stall had a red used hypodermic needle mounted on the wall. So, you know, there's, as we always talk about, and we are all aware of, white people are in love with heroin again, and they're being accommodated. There was a huge heroin conference here in New York in May, no, March, um, in Long Island. There's been talk in Mount Vernon on how they can accommodate their growing uh, heroin epidemic. Um, and like I said, on Long Island, they dropping like flies. So I said, is Whole Foods accommodating heroin uses by putting hypodermic needle boxes that are commonly seen in medical facilities in their public bathrooms? No, can't be. But like Mr. Fuller said, ask, 
So I went to the customer service desk, and uh, there were two black females there. And I asked them what those red boxes in the bathrooms were. And she said they were for needles. And I said, for what purpose are they there? Um, I don't understand. And she said that one of the workers who cleans bathrooms uh, was cleaning a, uh, in the bathrooms they have something where women put their feminine products. And she went to clean and she got stuck with a needle. And the way the girl said to me was that, the young lady said to me that this was a needle for somebody who was a diabetic. So they put those boxes in there for diabetics who need to go into the bathroom and take their insulin. Now I have diabetics in my family and I haven't had a chance to question them about this yet. But I am not aware, and maybe somebody, that's why I'm on the call, because maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. I am not aware that people who are diabetics often go into bathroom stalls and use, you know, and, and, and um, administer insulin to themselves and leave the hypodermic needles in trash cans or in, I, I'm, I, I've never heard of that. So that's why my first instinct was these are heroin users and Whole Foods seems to be accommodating heroin users. Then I asked um, because I just can't see management, you know, I, I looked at how management minds work. So I asked the young ladies if um, the employees in that Whole Foods were unionized because I could see a union move would be like, what? One of our workers got stuck with a hypodermic needle. You got to do something about that. You know, they do training or what have you, but for management to spend money on medical boxes, hypodermic needle boxes to put in bathroom stalls, I've never seen this before. So I just wanted to get anybody's opinion on whether or not they believe that it really could be because diabetics often use uh, needles and, you know, administer uh, um, the, the insulin to themselves using hypodermic needles and put them in inappropriate places and this is a valid precaution or could it be what I'm thinking is that this is going to be a trend for corporations, companies, whomever, wherever these uh, 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 this population, heroin population, is heavily um, um, heavily um, um, frequenting. That uh, these boxes are going to be put into place as a precaution, so that no one else has to be uh, injured by their drug abuse paraphernalia. Um, so I just wanted to get your feedback on that because I'm always looking at these, the behavior of what uh, white people sanction. There's their things that they do for uh, entertainment, for their recreation, and how um, what they do affects the dominant society and how we have to conform <laughs> to their rules and their laws and things of that nature. And I also have that feeling about, like, 
little children on cooking shows. I believe that, that this is warming us up to legalize pedophilia. That's just my thought, you know. And um, so I just wanted to get anybody's uh, idea on that. That's all I had on my mind. Thank you for listening. For sure, for sure. That's fascinating. Just today, um, as I was coming in to prepare for the program uh, at the intersection, um, not too, too far away from uh, my residence, not exactly around the block, but not that far away, uh, someone had dropped a package uh, at the intersection. It was actually out in the uh, in the road, and it was like a box of a whole bunch of needles uh like many many needles uh i would say more than 10 uh just right out in the road they dropped them and cars are trying to swerve uh around them uh left and right i didn't what i mean it was out in the middle of the road so i wasn't able to go to to inspect to see you know what all was there but uh just i mean you could clearly see that there were a lot of needles in this package that had been dropped and ran over uh, in the road and uh, this area here uh, in Washington State, I mean, is known uh, for uh, methamphetamine use uh, and heroin. Uh, They've been talking about that. Uh, they just did that big uh, PBS documentary uh, that came out at the beginning of the year and talking about this scourge of heroin and how this is uh, one of the areas that's been hit uh, really, really hard. Uh, over the last 10 years and, and they're so accommodating since it's white. I mean, this area is super white anyway, but uh, they're trying to be so accommodating and having all these uh, locations set up where you can get treatment and where you can drop off your needles and all this other stuff just to make it easier for white heroin addicts uh, to function, to get help if they need it or to just, you know, maintain as they indulge in their heroin addiction. Um, so, and you said this was in Manhattan and I think Manhattan as well, uh, that area of New York, I think is also known for being, this is really expensive real estate and you have to be a white person who has quite a few nickels. If you're going to stay here, we don't have just, you know, any old black people, uh, coming up to live in Manhattan. I think it's been like that for some time. So, um, my thought is that I, I would seriously doubt that they would put that in for, uh, diabetics. Uh, I've known diabetics in my life, and they generally have their material if they need insulin or a needle or what have you. That's something that they would generally have in their residence. It's been my experience. I have not known them to just be out and about uh, doing, having needles with them, uh, just on a run going to the grocery store or something like that. And I've got to go make a run to the bathroom and use, uh, take an injection of some sort. Uh, I'm not saying it never happens, but just my experience that was not a common thing not common enough that whole foods would have to have you know a whole system a whole code in place uh to deal with people uh diabetics uh using needles in their restroom facilities i just that does not seem believable to me uh, i think it's it's just total acquiescing to uh white heroin addicts uh who are using that store and probably using that restroom area uh to shoot up while there could even be whole foods employees who knows uh but that's what it speaks to me, uh, and I think that's going to be a widespread thing. I know that's kind of widespread here. I don't think I've ever been into a restroom, like any public restroom, 
uh, where they have uh, an area where you can dispose of needles, but I know they are having a growing number of facilities where it's just this is a place where you can go and drop off those uh, used needles and what have you. They ha they're having more and more of those places and more and more creative ways of having needle exchanges and that sort of thing uh, to aid whites uh, who are doing all this. So that's what I think it is. I think they were probably just uh, probably did not want to open up and just be truthful uh, in terms of the employees that you asked. Not saying that because I think you said they were black employees, not that they were being deceptive, but I suspect that that is the company rhetoric uh, that has been given out, that that's why we're doing this. Not that, you know, we have a lot of heroin users that are coming and using our store. I don't think Whole Foods would want that type of publicity to be known as this is the heroin shoot up spot in our bathroom. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I think it is. I could be an error, but I've not seen one of those. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if that becomes a growing trend, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, did other folks have, have commentary or am I talking crazy? Um, can I be heard? I uh, heard both of you, Thomas in New York and Roz. You, you want to go first, Thomas, or what? Hello? Oh, okay. No problem. Thank you. Um, I was going to say absolutely. Um, I, I know quite a few diabetics and have known them throughout my life as well. And I've never seen any business make any accommodation for a diabetic in any way. Matter of fact, they could actually start parading like um, like the uh, like uh, the gay movement to, to get accommodated because I've never heard of anything like that. One thing I can say is that um, I did, did see a documentary last year on um, on National Geographic about drug use in New York City in particular, and they did say that heroin use was going up in Manhattan. But the other thing, because I know a couple of people um, who actually, like sadly, people who I, who I know that use meth that are black and they're gay, and one of the methods of using meth is injecting it. So it could also be that because I know that meth use amongst homosexuals in New York and amongst white people, period, is extremely high. Um, so it could be actually that, and it seems to me like they gave those black females in the store some sort of nonsensical, um, you know, story to tell people. And obviously it seems like they might have fallen for that, but it definitely seems like a codification towards the protection of white people using drugs in public spaces. Um, they even used to like when they used to have the porta potties and stuff like that in, in um, area or in or near areas that um, have drug problems, they actually had to remove the porta potties because people would use the porta potties to, you know, shoot drugs or smoke drugs or whatever it is. And bathrooms are always a place that drug addicts go to to find privacy in the stalls in order to do whatever drug they're doing. Um, so to me, it makes it makes total sense. You um, thinking the way along the lines that you're thinking, and I'm thinking is to facilitate methamphetamine use for those who inject it, and also heroin use because both of those drugs are probably the two most used drugs in the country, um, especially for white people. Like when it comes to meth, like that is their thing. And heroin is now having a resurgence in the white community in a way that is unfathomable. And funny enough, Harlem, when it was black, was the heroin capital of the world at one point. So I just find it very, very um, interesting. But yeah, I, that's my contribution. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, uh, you're both of you because um, uh, confirming that for me. And by the way, when, heroin, when Harlem was the heroin capital of the world, we didn't have no boxes. We just dropped them on the street. That's right. <laughs> for, the children, for the children to pick up, okay? That's what that was about. I'm in my mind. 
I'm sorry, I was going to say the other thing is diabetics are trained on how to safely discard their needles. I've never seen a diabetic just put a needle that's not covered in the trash or any space that someone can get to it or a child can get to it. I, every diabetic that I've known has always recovered or kept that needle and properly disposed of it if they were using it in their house or if you know, if they were traveling somewhere and had to inject insulin. So just the whole idea of them um, even saying to you, oh, somebody got stuck with a needle while cleaning the bathroom, that's drug addict behavior. That stuff used to happen at Coney Island. I'm from Brooklyn. Drugs, crack, and other drugs were in this heyday in New York. So that's something that I've only seen with drug addicts, not with diabetics. So that's my other contribution. Thank you. Yeah, you don't have to tell me about Orchard Beach because those sand combers would never comb up them needles. They were always on the beach. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, Thomas from New York. I think he had something he wanted to say. Yes, I did. Um, you know, uh, in high school, um, uh, there was a, a teacher slash basketball coach who was a racist, and um, he was a insulin um, injector. And, um, you know, I remember we came together and made a complaint because he would leave spots of blood in the bathroom or you could see the, the not the syringe, but the, 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 the cloth. He wouldn't flush the toilet or whatever. Um, what I was thinking is definitely true about the heroin use um, to accommodate white people, of course. <clears throat> Give them a place where they could go and shoot up and not be harassed by the police or like that. And um, probably, um, you know, let them stay in there and give them a free, some food and stuff, too, for free while they're in there, too. I'm going to go on 125th Street and check out. I think there's a whole food where the Pathmark used to be, and I'm going to see if they're in there. But also, uh, while you were discussing it, I looked it up, and um, it, it said that they expect to have these all airports. Um, and they say due to people who take insulin, but mostly Humira, uh, which is a rheumatoid arthritis drug, and it appears to treat uh, uh, psoriasis and Crohn's disease and, um, you know, a whole bunch of other things as well. And this seems to be a very popular drug. So I'm also thinking that um, there are a lot of white people who are um, typed in Humira addiction and it pops up. You know, there's a lot of people addicted to this um, drug. That's a whole, um, that's a prescription drug. So I think that a lot of these drugs that they're coming out with uh, in the future are going to require syringe. Um, as they um, try to legalize heroin, I'm sure they're going to come with some legal form of it um, that, you know, you can shoot up and it won't be a criminal offense to have it and you can get it from your doctor. Um, I'm sure they'll come out with something like that um, pretty soon as well. And I'll meet my mom. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I, I just have a, um, a feeling that, you know, this whole foods was uh, frequented about by, um, you know, overwhelming uh, majority black people, non-white people, instead of setting up on um, these sharps containers, um, should they be setting up cameras and sting operations to, you know, see if someone's doing some type of uh, type of uh, illegal activity. That's all I have. No, I ain't no black people around here. No black people in that Whole Foods. However, there's a huge Whole Foods opening, I think, also 
120 Fish Street across from the Lineage Lounge. Thomas from New York, you may know what I'm talking about. I didn't know that the Pathmark turned into a Whole Foods. I hadn't been that far east. But I hope know that there's another one opening up. So we'll see if Sharps boxes show up in their nose as well. I don't know. Definitely agree. I could not see them uh, taking that same approach uh, if it was black people were the predominant patrons uh, at this Whole Foods, them being that accommodating. Uh, as previous caller said, it would be cameras, sting operator, sting operation, undercover enforcement officials uh, everywhere. I mean, it would be, uh, in my view, totally different approach uh, to how they uh, they might even get rid of the restroom uh, totally, might not even have public bathrooms in the facility anymore. And you know what you just said does made me think? Because when heroin addicts do not have access to needles, especially very, very poor ones, they're going to smash those boxes open to get at those needles to reuse them. So that the whole bathroom scenario is going to turn into like a toxic waste nightmare. I see it happening down the road simply because, you know, white people are savages. You know, you're going to have those dirt road, really poor white people who can't even afford clean needles, and they're going to want to get into those boxes to get it to use needles because drug addicts don't care about, you know, sanitation or anything of that nature when they're, you know, looking for a fix on that level. So I could see that becoming a nightmare in no time flat, and then white people will come up with a new code to, um, you know, work on that aspect of it next. But I just thought about that, just just seeing that becoming like a, a bloodstained night, nightmare in the bathrooms. Speaking about that, and, um, you know, I just got a visual of what you were talking about. And uh, with regard to that and black people's confusion, I don't think that many of us recognize, can recognize some of these heroin users. Um, I know I probably don't. They probably wear suits and all of that. I get that. But, um I had an experience up here, like I'm way uptown here near Washington Heights, and there's a drive that ends up here by me, and there's a couple of white heroin addicts who have found their way up here at the end of the drive begging for money. I mean, and I looked at them, and I could tell these are the ones that live under the bridge and, you know, what have you. But many of us don't uh, correlate that, and I believe it's because of the color of their skin, with them being drug abusers. I think that's part of our general confusion. And I say that because they were panhandling for money. Of course, I'm looking at them waiting for the light to turn. But this black woman, you know, she rolls down her window. She got $2 in her hand. And she's getting ready to give it to them. So I'm beeping my horn like, don't do it. And she's looking at me like, what? What's the problem? They're saying they're hungry. And I'm looking at her, keep your money. Please keep your money. And I'm kind of like, giving her the signal that, that, you know, that they shoot up and stuff like that, but she didn't get it. And that's, you know, that's part of our general confusion when we, a, a lot of us, not all of us, you know, those of us who are, are more aware and less confused, we see them, we, we say, oh, they're homeless, but we're not correlating their, 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 their you know, their, uh, their addictions and their, that there are other uh, degeneracies. We're not correlating that. And, you know, we sitting up here giving them my money and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I just wanted to throw that out there because I got a visual of them being the kind that would smash boxes, like you said. 
it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I met up with Roz this last fall. And uh, we were downtown Manhattan, and um, white guy comes up to us and asks us for change. And, you know, we both like, we ain't doing no change. But he was very aware. He said, you know, oh, um, none of these white people around here give me change. I have to go to Brownsville to get some money. So, you know, he, would, he picked the blackest area of New York to say, oh, okay, yeah, that's the only place where, you know, me as a white person could get some change, you know, you know, so to find them up there in Washington Heights um, wouldn't be surprising because they know that due to our victimization that we'll be giving them change before we'll give it to someone who looks just like us. Um, also, in um, European countries, because uh, if you think heroin is bad here, I mean, uh, I think um, Moscow is one out of four. People between the age of 18 and 35 are addicted to heroin. And um, Berlin has a big crisis. It's also big in um, the Netherlands. And they actually have um, syringe disbursement centers put out in public places to go and get clean syringes to shoot up. And they designate certain public areas where they can shoot up and not be harassed by police. So I expect to see a huge part of Central Park soon being a shoot-up zone. If uh, while she was sharing that, I remember the portion from Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, again, reading is more important than watching television, reading and writing, coincidentally. Um, but I remember when Dr. Welsing, when she was on the program, in fact, I was uh, sh- I shared from Long Walk to Freedom. We were talking about the situation with Bill Cosby and how she would respond to that, what her thoughts were about that. And she was talking about all the the infinite number of sexual violations of black people, males, females, children, all of us. And she said, you know, when white people respond to the way that they have sexually terrorized black people forever, then, you know, we could talk about Bill Cosby after they talk about what they've done to us for centuries. And I included in that, I was saying uh, Nelson Mandela, Madiba, he talked about how when he was uh, in greater confinement for those nearly three decades that uh, whites used the guards, the inmates, they used to urinate on him. This is what the whites did. And she gave her response to that. And I remember she, that was something profound. I think she had said that she hadn't read uh, long walk to freedom. So she hadn't heard that before, but she had talked about how some of her clients had talked about this. I think she said it was a a black male who had been in the armed services that a white person uh, urinated on him. And this just seems to be a staple of racism, white supremacy using their sex organs to denigrate uh, black people. Anyway, the other passage that I thought of that's related to our current conversation uh, about seeing these poor whites and not thinking that they're addicts and we still want to help them, it reminded me of that portion in Mediba. Uh, I was able to put my hand on it. So I said I love the e-book versions because you can place things really quickly. I don't know if I'd have been able, I wouldn't even have had the physical copy in my hand to do so. Uh, but the ebook from Long Walk to Freedom, uh, Madiba, he says, while I was walking in the city one day, I noticed a white woman in the gutter gnawing on some fish bones. She was poor and apparently homeless, but she was young and not unattractive. I knew, of course, that there were poor whites, whites who were every bit as poor as Africans, but one rarely saw them. I was I was used to seeing black beggars on the street, and it startled me to see a white one. While I normally did not give to African beggars, I felt the urge to give this woman money. In that moment, I realized the tricks that apartheid plays on one, apartheid white supremacy. I realized uh, for the everyday travails that afflict Africans, 
are accepted as a matter of course while my heart immediately went out to this bedraggled white woman in South Africa to be poor and black was normal to be poor and white was a tragedy I think that is how we have been afflicted, contaminated, brain trashed worldwide, not just in South Africa. And he was writing about this, uh, I suspect, doing the math, this would probably be 40, 50 years ago. I think this is still true now, uh, 2016, for the exact, uh, exact reasons that the female caller in New York just said that we just don't see, for whatever reason, we just don't see whites uh, when they're down and out as, oh my God, this is some sort of fiend, get away from me, I don't want to give you anything, you might try and rob me, get away, call the you know enforcement officials, we just don't see them in that manner, them being classified as white still takes precedence uh, in all of the unfortunate associations with that here, let me see if I can find something to try to, to help that person out. Anything else? Folks wanted to make sure they uh, got in uh, last minute or so before we wrap things up. Anything else? And if uh, make sure I'm uh, checking in commentary that I shared about separation. In my view, separation, quote unquote, does not solve the problem of racism, white supremacy. Uh, wake up call. My suggestion would be I don't think that's an accurate metaphor to describe what we're talking about in terms of someone getting a more accurate understanding, realization of white supremacy, racism or uh, any of the uh, portions that we spoke about earlier. Anything else folks want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up? Um, yeah, I had a quick one. Um, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and um, this was Friday and um, I see that um, Apple um, CEO of Apple Music, Jay Irene, has put in a bid to buy um, Tidal um, from Jay-Z. I did see and that. And I said, um, um, Jay-Z is in a bad predicament owning all this black music. And now here's Jimmy Irene, um, that's Tupac. And so Dr. Dre, that's, I mean, how much music does he own? And um, now um, he's trying to buy all that print stuff because that's Jay-Z that has exclusive rights to a lot of Prince's music. And um, I was, I, they, they put everything in that article, but how much they wanted to buy it for. That's what I was looking for. And um, I sent you, I was, uh, maybe I started, with, you know, there's so many things I start writing and then get distracted and I never get back to it. But um, it was an article today about um, a website where you can go and put down people who you think are racist. Did you see that? Uh, I did not see that. I'll go check my email right now. I, I might have not sent it. I might have started it and not sent it, but um, it, I just Googled racist and um, it came up in one of the articles, you know, this website that this white guy started. And I went to it. And um, you, you put the person's name, last name, email address, you know, and put down whatever racist commentary they, that you could find that they might have posted on social media or whatever. And I was thinking all these um, admitted racists that have admitted to being racist on the show, probably good to put a nice audio clip for each one of them on there. Uh, it's uh, HelloRacist.com. HelloRacist.com is the... Uh, name of the site and uh, it looks like you can go through and just add uh, they have uh, I guess the person's name and then they have a posting with images or whatever it is that the person did uh, to, to evidence their racism man we for sure uh, T Jane Elliott should be on there Timothy Wise uh, you can just roll through uh, the, the list of 
whites that have been here uh, and admitted that they, uh, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, uh some of the folks coming to mind immediately. The last week from Canada. Oh, yeah. Jillian right. Shoe. <laughs> tons of them. Tons of photograph, audio segment. The white guy from South Africa. Did he admit to being a racist? Well, what he sent you in that email was yeah. more than enough, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> he more than fits the bill. And just to piggyback on what um, the sister was talking about, like us not being able to recognize drug-addicted white people really just goes to show how we have been so codified to see them as being um, the the example of what so-called humanity is supposed to be, that even when they're drug-addicted and cracked out, we're not able to see them. But we can spot a, a black person who is on drugs from a mile away. I don't, and the funny part is they look worse than we do when they're on drugs, but we're able to spot our own when, when they're high or when they're using drugs. But when a white person is there using drugs, you look past all of their filthy skin, the canker sores on their arms, all the, the emaciated look with the dirty yellow teeth. You look past all of that to dig in your pocket to give them a couple of dollars. They got you conditioned really seriously to see them um, as the just, as white people, as it's the Jesus Christ syndrome again. So even, you know, trash white people get looked at with respect and dignity. And, you know, we look at our own, like, trash. So that's, that speaks volumes to psychosocial conditioning of black people. And while I was trying to tell the sister not to give, not to give these, <laughs> these drug-addicted urchins the money, it was a woman, you know, it was a female and a, and a man, and she, he put her out there, you know, with the sign. I mean, this is, it was so classic. He put her out there with the sign, I'm hungry and everything, right? So I'm telling the sister not to give anybody. And she looks at me and she starts cursing me. <laughs> That's what I'm doing my life. She starts, what am I doing? I haven't done anything to you. You effing so-and-so. <laughs> oh, my God. I just sat there waiting for the light to change. I was like, please get me out of here. But it was so sad. I mean, it really, really is a testimony to our confusion. She was paying her tithes to Jesus in that moment. She was mad that you were interrupting her conversation with the deity. As sad as that is, that's what it comes across to me as. We're going to get it together. We are going to get it together. This will all be just a bad experience uh, once we have done our job on our assignment, as Dr. Welsing demonstrated. Dr. Kanban continues to demonstrate be on our assignment to solve this problem. Uh, I did. I posted the website uh, that Thomas emailed me. Hello, racist. I uh, posted it uh, as a link, as a comment. Uh, if you're on Facebook uh, with this uh, episode, uh, with the posting for this uh, event episode here on the cows this evening. Uh, and it's right under Dr. Cambon. He mentioned timely, since we were talking about uh, Kevin Durant and NBA stuff, uh, the documentary he referenced, uh, Journey of the African-American Athlete. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's about two hours. Uh, he was talking about the uh, black cyclist was so good <laughs> that the racist, they would stand on the side of the road and try to throw uh, broomsticks in his tire to... Uh, to mess him up, like if you want to contrast that with Lance Dopey Armstrong, uh, wow. But yeah, I posted if you want to check that out. I hadn't even heard of that uh, documentary, but Journey of the African American Athlete. Uh, you can check it out. It's on YouTube, two hours in its entirety. Oh, there was one other thing I was going to, or two things I'll get in really quick before we wrap up. Number one, uh, courtesy of Roz, uh, looks like I am 
doing, they accepted my proposal to do an essay on Dr. Welsing. Uh, and so uh, the essay, I believe it's going to be titled uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Donald Trump and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy and talking about because that was one of the things that she was talking about a lot. Uh, in the last couple months before her transition, she talked about it on this program. She talked about it on Carl Nelson. She talked about it at the Welsing Institute uh, and predicting that he was going to be the next president and why, based on her understanding of white supremacy, white genetic annihilation. Uh, so if there are reports, articles, um, anything that's relevant to that particular title in terms of her, uh, Dr. Welsing's assessment of Donald Trump and what's going to happen uh, anything that she said specifically or just anything that has come out, articles or what have you that have happened over the past, I guess, seven months now that you think would relate to that. If you could uh, send them my way, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you could, if you could use the subject uh, Welsing essay, that would be helpful so I can kind of keep things organized. Welsing essay, just put that as a subject. But if you come across anything, uh, if it's a segment specifically from the ISIS papers, I'm going to go back and uh, reread that to see if there are specific portions that I can use related to this uh, or if there are any other interviews or lectures that she gave uh, that where she's talking about this subject specifically. Uh, if you want to send that, that'd be great. Uh, as I said, any articles that have come out, you know, this year, 2016, that you think are relevant to this, feel free, send them my way, and uh, we'll be working on that for this month. Uh, the other thing, um, I'm not really solidified, so if you have feedback, feel free, because I could probably be persuaded either way. Medical apartheid, we're almost done. There's only one chapter left in the book, but there is an epilogue. The epilogue is a little lengthy. The epilogue is, it takes about an hour to read the full uh, epilogue. Uh, I guess to make it simple, we have roughly two hours of audio left for the book, uh, book study session, which is every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We normally do about 90 minutes of audio. So... We could do our normal audio session, which would be 90 minutes, which would leave us roughly 30 minutes of audio for next Friday, which is, you know, pretty short. We could do that or we could do kind of a shorter session this week, roughly an hour. Uh, so we'd have a short session this week and then a short session next week. Or we could just do the whole thing this Friday, which would make the session roughly 30 minutes longer than it normally is. But we would be done with the book this week. And then next week we could just start brand new with uh, Blood Brothers, which is the book on uh, Minister, Ma uh, Minister Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, their friendship, the demise of their friendship, uh, and how racism, white supremacy connects to all of that. We'd be starting that next Friday. Uh, at first, I was thinking, you know, this book, Medical Apartheid, has been so good, and let's not rush through it. But then I wasn't, I did not grasp that it was only that much left. Uh, I was like, well, an extra 30 minutes doesn't seem that bad. I don't know what people would be doing Friday, but I kind of started leaning to let's just do the whole thing this week, and then we can start the new book next week. Uh, if people have an opinion, and you should only be giving your thoughts on this if you participate in the book club. If you have not been keeping up, if you don't participate in the book club, then you really shouldn't have a say-so uh, about you know which way we go. But people that have been following, if you have thoughts, uh, a suggestion, a preference for how we navigate the last basically two hours of the audiobook medical apartheid that would be good as i said i'm kind of leaning towards let's just do the whole thing this friday since it's not that much left but i think i could be persuaded to break this up if people think that would be better i i go with um let's finish it um i mean this is this has been a great book but um um it's been a tough one <laughs> it's been a hard one um man 
I got to reflect on the book. Um, I, I would say let's just um, knock it out and let's hopefully get into something a little bit more positive. I have to second that. I'm down with the extra half hour. I don't care. Um, it's not not that I want to be through with the book either, but I agree with with Thomas. Um, I think it'll be good to just bang it out Friday, and then we can can move on on um, the following week. And all I have to say is all praises due to Dr. Frances Crest Wilson. She opened the paths and doors and roads to this happening. I'm so I almost did the Toyota dance in my house, guys. I'm glad to hear that it went through. Um, just keep us posted on the developments, and I'm on my assignment, so I'll start sending you um, articles and whatnot that would link to that subject matter, okay? Oh, for sure, for sure. Appreciate the yes. uh, recommendation pushing me to uh, Anytime, man. I love your writing. It's, it's phenomenal. I think your focus is laser sharp, and um, I think your insights will be really, really powerful just with the sheer number of contacts that you've had with her and the profound effect she's had on your development. Um, I, I see it just on how you function on the programs on a regular basis, and I think that you're a, a brilliant example of a, a counter-racist student of Dr. Wilson's in action every time you use, especially when you talk to white folks, but especially when you deal with black people and how you handle them. So I'm so happy to hear that, and I can't wait till it comes out. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Uh, if folks, uh, participants in the book club, if you have uh, a preference, you have a vote on, you know, should we just do the whole thing this Friday and finish it up uh, or break it up in some manner uh, between this Friday and next Friday? Uh, if you uh, want to email, that's fine, untiljustice at gmail.com. You should probably do this, like, sooner than later, like, uh, by, because I'll probably have to make a decision by Thursday in, in terms of how to how to do all this. So if you have a thought, uh, feel free. You can message on Facebook or on Twitter at Until Justice, and we'll navigate as I'm kind of leaning towards. Let's just do it all. I, it's been phenomenal. I cannot, I don't have enough praise uh, to dole out to Harriet Washington for medical apartheid. It's just been outstanding. It's, it's easily uh, one of the best five books that I've read. Uh, it is just massively uh, informative uh, about racism, white supremacy. You should never again be able to hear anybody reference what individuals who classify themselves as white have done to us and classify that as white privilege with medical apartheid in mind. There is no way you can label that. You can brand centuries of deliberate scientific terrorism and just say, oh, that's just a little, little white privilege there. But uh, feel free, let us know how to divvy it up, and uh, we will proceed. Either way, it is coming. If not next Friday, then the Friday after next, Blood Brothers. That'll be the next book that we do. Uh, I think that'll be timely reflections on uh, the great Muhammad Ali and Minister Malcolm X, their friendship. Another example of racists being able directly, indirectly, to manipulate conflict uh, between non-white people. And I think that would be another illustration of why we should be out of the business of name-calling other black people, even if we don't agree with them or problems. I mean, that's going to happen, but just we're not in the business of name-calling black people. Dr. Welsing would encourage that, and I think both Muhammad Ali and Minister Malcolm X would for sure say, yeah, we have some regrets about name-calling other black people that probably was not the best way to go. But we'll see. Uh, we will wrap things up. KamalKamban.org. Uh, KamalKamban.org. Again, it's linked in the description. Uh, I'll tweet it out again and put it on Facebook if you need the exact uh, address. You get confused or what have you. His books are there, articles, photographs, all of the above. Uh, go to the website. You can support his counter-racist effort as well. KamalKamban.org. 
Hope the broadcast was worthy of your time and energy this Tuesday evening. Uh, we'll be here on Thursday for Workplace Racism. Same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this coming Thursday, uh, if you have anecdotes you'd like to share uh, from your workplace, you can email them until justice at gmail.com and we'll read them on the program. Uh, definitely looking forward to hearing folks. Uh, if you have figured out some codification to minimize problems on the job, share that as well. And if you all are having any kind of summer cookouts, because I know I've had to do that, uh, where they have summer work picnics or all this other nonsense madness on the job, uh, you can share how you have navigated that if you're having to participate in any of that as well. Uh, But at any rate, thanks for all of the uh, folks who dialed in. Great to hear the exchange of views. And uh, we'll be here uh, in 48 hours. Uh, In the meantime, I will say again, because I'm sure folks did not go through all of their fireworks and booze over the last 48 hours. So I will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, You do not want to make the job of any race soldiers, Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, Daniel Pantaleo, any of these other whites with or without a badge. You do not want to make their job any easier. Uh, If you're in a vehicle, you do not want to be intoxicated. Uh, That is whether you are a driver, passenger or pedestrian. Each and every time you're in that car, you should have that in mind. You never know when you could be pulled over. You want to be able to make a phenomenal decisions to keep yourself as safe as possible you and anybody else that you might be responsible for in that vehicle buckle up every time you're in the vehicle let's do all that we can to minimize contact with enforcement officials i will say again alcohol and white those are two things that should never go together Uh, anytime you see whites under the influence that is a massively dangerous environment that should be avoided in my opinion at all cost things can get lethal in the blink of an eye. With that, thanks again for tuning in. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing would remind us it is an exercise of black self-respect to refrain from name-calling and squabbling with other black people. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.